Guess what, ghouls and goblins? The Spook Boys have officially joined Patreon. That's right, they the show as you know it will remain the same, ad-free, but our patrons will have exclusive access to bonus content. Interviews, franchise deep dives, even horror television. Wait, did you say television? You heard right, Sally. Becoming a patron means you're not only helping us keep the show running, but that it also remains available on all platforms, and again, ad-free. For more details, head on over to patreon.com, where you can become an official member of the Spoop Troop today. Derek, man, I've been on this website and I've been learning some like wild shit. Um, have you ever heard of this website called 4chan? Oh God, not look, going to look, listen look. to this. I'm not this going website to hear this now. La, 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 tells la, you la, everything la. that you need to know about like la, the la, crazy la. Illuminati conspiracies Fingers in my ears. There's this chemical that's called adrenochrome. La la Fucking la la. Teddy Roosevelt is actually preserved in cryostasis. I want to kill everyone. Satan is There's good. There's a Sundarian Death Lord Jungle Gym <laughs> underneath a Euro shop it's all there the truth is there <laughs> oh i thought it was a pizza shop or am i like way late on my up-to-date q theories <laughs> hell yeah welcome to another episode of watch if you dare a horror movie podcast hosted by me the cowardly craven host derek i was gonna say co-host to myself and aaron my co-host movie monster boy which we know like fears phobias and social relevancy sally is good sally is our pal <laughs> of horror movies across all ages and subgenres and in this case Maybe not necessarily a horror movie. We'll get to that, as well as discuss just how scary they are for horror newbies and horror junkies alike. Yeah, this week, as you can see by the, the title, uh, we have a returning guest. This is your first time back since Tremors. So this is your second appearance, I think, only on our show. It is my childhood best friend who we're going on, what, almost 30 years of friendship now. We've known each other since pre-K. Sean Mars, how are you? Bud. Doing good, guys. Really happy to be here. Excited to jump into some horror from exactly one year from the other last title that I was on here for. Trevor's and uh, the Burbs are exactly my speed of horror. It's just a slow pitch down a kind of funny, kind of actiony, kind of wild world. So really excited for it. Hell yeah. So we've, we've been bringing this up a lot lately since like we appeared on the Bruce Campbell podcast. But, like, have you ever watched Vampire Sundown and Retreat? Because even though we didn't necessarily like it, it definitely feels like your speed of horror movie. And I think you should give it a shot. It's definitely worth at least a watch, even if it's not the Derek best movie. Derek is saying we didn't like it. It is dumb and goofy. Yeah. It is Ooh. fun. So it is <laughs> something that you may still get a kick out of. I like it. And Bruce Campbell is in a great role in that movie. Like, he's in, like, yeah. one of the best comedic roles in, in that movie easily. So yeah, give that a whirl. I think it might be your speed if you like uh, those two movies. But yeah, so like, yeah, we haven't had you on for a while. Let's get into recommendations right off the bat before we get into the movie. Uh, This is a section where we recommend other horror movies, books, TV shows, video games, any horror media that we all have consumed lately. And we talk about it and hopefully your audience hears something that you may want to check out. So uh, Sean, guess goes first. Have you been getting into horror or anything horror related lately? Yeah, so this is going to be a little bit tangentially horror because I am not a traditional horror fan. I tried to look over the last year to see if there are 
any horror movies or shows that, that interest I, you. That yeah. And legitimately, I think I saw Nope on a plane, and that's about it as far as horror movies, <laughs> which was a delightful creature flick. Hey, Nope counts. It's a spoiler to call it that, but it is a delightful creature flick uh, that I enjoyed. Which was fun, but if we're thinking about more things that I, I really, really loved in the last year that I think are horror adjacent, I think there's three things that count for that. I'm maybe not a traditional horror fan for movies or anything like that, but I do play a little bit, quite a bit, of Dungeons and Dragons and have started to play Hell in yeah. a Curse of Strahd campaign this year. So I've been donning my cloak and getting as spooky as possible in the world of Ravenloft while we hunt down the vampire lord himself, Strahd. I'm guessing it's an adventure book, like one of the pre-made campaign books, and this one is more leaning towards like gothic horror. A hundred percent. And it really is just so densely horror focused in what is not traditionally a horror world, right? There's dragon people clerics and knights and paladins and stuff like that and you just meet some people that are like hey do you want to come on a trip to a fun place and you go with them and then they're like jk it's hell and you're strahd and you're gonna meet werewolves and terrible goblin people that grind up children into pies right like to me it is so horror focused there's like a comedy to it We are interacting as if we were all fish out of water in this place. And we're like, why is everything sad everywhere? (laughs) We walk into town and they're like, yeah, well, the orphanarium that is most of the town. You're like, why? Why would that be the case? And they're like, well, everything is bad here, which is funny Uh, and and, and deeply, deeply fun. Not funny in, in the source material, but funny in how we sort of interact with it or go into it. Yeah, y'all are a bunch of goofs. Yeah, y'all are a bunch of goofs. I'm taking it seriously. I was looking at the artwork, actually, from the guidebook for it, and I've noticed this since Wizards of the Coast has taken over D&D, and granted, I'm not going to get into all the politics of that, because there's been a lot of... It's been very hit or miss with them taking control of D&D. They haven't done the best job, but I will say from the art standpoint, it does feel like magic has definitely influenced a lot of the artwork and vice versa, because there's been a lot of crossover between magic planes appearing in D&D guidebooks and then D&D are now having magic sets printed and like D&D famous characters have magic cards now and so yeah this looks very magic the gathering vampire a hundred percent I'm sure Strahd is now a card you can play in magic the gathering my favorite part about the art is that every single character looks fucking evil <laughs> everyone yeah I'm looking at like Google images right now and these are all pretty red <laughs> everyone looks evil and like sometimes we'll be playing we're like oh what does this guy look like and my friend Connor who's the DM is like I cannot show you their pictures because they look evil and you're just gonna assume that they're the bad guy <laughs> and I'm just, I can't show you these people until we've dealt with the scenario and we've dealt with it because you look at this guy and he's like the grave digger and he's crunched up and he's looking at you with his eye bulging out and you're like oh he's the bad guy we should kill this guy (laughs) obviously and we are playing as three non-magical schlubs uh who basically have ended up in this scenario where things are magic all the time and they're like there's a cursed mirror and it's like and you can't do anything about that because you're you know a guy with a sword and I'm like, okay, we, we, we leave then. <laughs> sure. I've seen that Strahd has been around since the first edition yeah. D&D. 
I looked at his stats and like shit myself. Good luck trying to fight this guy as a final boss because uh, yeah. yeah, it's rough, man. Yeah, that has been fun. And that kind of leans into the next big recommendation. I mean, obviously, recommending people play D&D is a lot. You got to get a group of people uh, to play it. Yeah, tabletop gaming's fun. But it's yeah. super fun. But a lot of people that listen, I guarantee you do play D&D. And might have just been waiting for somebody to, like, get them to pull the trigger on this expansion. And hey, if you're trying to get into more horror-related tabletopping, I know Vampire the Masquerade is a huge one. Like, all of the White Wolf or White Frost? White Wolf, yeah. White Wolf, yeah, because they also do werewolf shit, too. I mean, Pathfinder has a shit ton of options in terms of turning stuff into spooky nonsense so yeah there's plenty of tabletop resources out there and actually my other recommendation is ttrpg focused and from someone who got famous as a ttrpg player for white wolf vampire the masquerade specifically oh nice Uh, eric ishii and a group of other folks did coffin run and coffin run is on dropout and is a entire D&D miniseries that's vampire and spooky themed. It's with uh, Eric Ishii, Isabel Roland, Zakoyama, Carlos Luna, and is DM'd by Jasmine Buar. And it's incredible. It's very funny. I just watched the finale earlier today. And the entire premise is a group of Dracula's lieutenants or like hench people basically like he's got his igor and his blood bag son guy that he's just feeding on constantly and this new starlet who's one of his newest wives these people are all going to go meet dracula who's coming back in town from the united states and he gets into town and then someone shoots him with a cannonball and like knocks off half his face And suddenly, every one of this little party has to try to get Dracula back to his castle while everyone is after him. And it's like a Mad Max-style chase where they're on stagecoaches and trains and like all these sorts of things as they're trying to get Dracula back to his soil, which is a a delightful, spooky, funny piece of uh, TCRPG nonsense. Aaron, I don't remember if I'd brought this up or if you edited it out, but I brought up a recommendation where there was an interlude mini campaign that Adventure Zone did called Dust. And on season two, Eric Ishii is the guest player in that. And that okay. one's also very like gothy horror mixed with Western. It's like weird West okay. RPG. As we were discussing earlier, Sundown is kind of that perfect goofy vampire Western mix. So yeah, I'm, I'm down with genre mashup. Let's go. Nice. And then the, my final rec, this will be brief, but uh, I went and saw Nick Letzko in concert last week here at the 930 Club. And Nick Letzko was a musician that got into a little bit of comedy songs during the pandemic, two of which are sort of thematically spooky, I guess you could say. One of them directly ties into the movie that we watched because Joe Dante's Gremlins is a big part of Where Did the Gremlins Go? A song about the tragedy that there hasn't been a Gremlins 3 after two <laughs> incredible movies. So tell me where did the Gremlins go? It's been so long the show. We could have had Gremlins versus Home Alone or at least a cameo and Attack of the Clones. There should have been a Gremlin in Jurassic Park or a Charles Lack Crying in our sleep wondering where did the gremlins go? 
And then he did a trilogy of songs about Spirit Halloween. <laughs> Hell yeah. Including the theme song for Spirit Halloween, which is a masterpiece of uh, him basically saying, hey, Spirit Halloween, I need to make you a new theme song if you'll pay me $1,000 for each 100 retweets uh, of this song. Then kind of goes into, at the end of it, it's like, oh, Spirit Halloween is the ghost of all these other buildings that Amazon has killed, right? Like Jeff Bezos murdered Sears and the ghost is a Spirit Halloween. Official theme for Spirit Halloween. Guaranteed to give you a thrill. Hell to the queen, this is Spirit Halloween. Haunting the buildings of every business. Jeff Bezos killed. Jeff Bezos murdered Barnes and Noble. Jeff Bezos murdered Sears. Well, that's like even more multi-layered because it's meta as fuck because most Spirit Halloweens are in closed down stores. Oh, like they yeah. just pop up in closed down stores. 100%. And that, that's like the whole bit, which is like really funny, like sort of dig at late stage capitalism while also being just a silly song. Uh, and then he did a sequel where Spirit Halloween then gave him a bunch of money and he bought like $100,000 of animatronics. And it's just him taking over his entire house with animatronics. Truly a delight. I like <laughs> highly recommend it. Nick Let's Go, The Spirit of Halloween Trilogy, to watch all three of those is great. And then Where Did the Gremlins Go? Is uh, just a, you know, it's a shout out to Joe Dante and the movie that we're going to be watching, that era of kind of cheesy, kind of goofy, not really horror, but dips its toe just into horror yeah yeah you sent us the music video he made with it and it's great it's a very good companion piece to uh, another video that aaron and i brought up a few times on the show uh the key and peel sketch where they're pitching gremlins 2 and like how did gremlins 2 get made in the writer's room what about a uh, spider gremlin you mean a gremlin with eight legs and a thorax just catching pretty ladies in a web in an office building oh my god it's in the movie i love it next what about a bat gremlin you mean a gremlin with leathery wings just flying around, flip-flopping, bust through a wall, make a perfect bat symbol in the wall, get outside, get in some wet concrete, jump up on a building and just dry in place like a gargoyle gremlin? We are cooking with gas now. I love it. It's in the movie next. Could there be a female gremlin? Lipstick boobies, bitch, you have me and little gremlin but JJ. I love it so much that it's not only in the movie, but it's definitely in the movie. There's no backseats on that one, no penny taxis. Yes, 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 in the movie, done! That's why we need a woman in the writer's room. Next! So both those are like good companion pieces to Joe Dante in general. Um, And like we talked about, and we'll we'll get into this when we're talking about the Burbs, but Joe Dante has had like a wild career. Yeah. Amazing. Like I keep forgetting the movies he actually directed. Cool. Well, uh, is that it for you? That's that's it. That's about as horror as I get. Hey, those are good recommendations. (laughs) I think you're the first person to recommend tabletop gaming, or at least as far as being in a direct campaign. Aaron, what have you got? So I've actually got three things that are kind of all related. They're all movies and they kind of all stemmed off of doing prep for this. Like I've been doing for the last couple of episodes where, okay, what do I want to watch? I don't know. What is fucking something related to this movie? So I found a trio of interesting alien movies from the last bunch of years. The first one was called Creature from 1985. In the future, in the shadow of Saturn's rings, 
stranded beneath the surface of the barren moon called Titan. Scientists find the one thing they never expected. Is anybody here? Was expecting them. Suddenly, those who had traveled across the galaxy had run out of space. Creature. We found someone's collection of life from all over the galaxy, like a child's butterfly collection. Only some of these butterflies are not so friendly. Who wants to keep us here? It's open one of the doors. The thing is using it for food. It's using our own man to kill each other. Creature. It kills to live. And it lives to kill. Directed by William Malone. He is kind of most well-known for doing the House on Haunted Hill remake from 1999, and he did several episodes of Tales from the Crypt and Freddy's Nightmares, which Tales from the Crypt will definitely be coming back up on this episode as we get deeper in. But this movie is a absolute, complete fucking ripoff of Alien. 100%. (laughs) It is, oh God, we found some ancient artifact shit on this planet. Oh God, there's something still alive down here. Oh, this crew needs to go investigate. They go down on the surface. Everything is fucking dark and smoky and blue. And there's lightning. And of course, there's an alien that like one by one picks them off. The art design is very ripping off the Nostromo look. Everything kind of has that white and taupe and light blue kind of color palette. There are like the occasional weird touches. The first being... That this is definitely a movie of the 80s in that the opening scroll is like space travel in the future is dominated by two factions on Earth, the USA and West Germany. (laughs) So, you know that uh, this was from that alternate timeline where the Cold War never ended. Not Russia, not China. West Germany. No, West Germany. Germany. The Soviet powerhouse. Not East Germany. Just West Germany. So, like, the part that the U.S. was... Backing. Exactly. Wow. <laughs> so the whole deal is, oh, there's this weird archaeological site on Titan, and the U.S. crew has to go there and claim it first. And they realize that the West German group has already gotten there. They're all dead. They're trying to investigate the ship. Oh, so like the thing now. <laughs> yeah, right. And the crew is Lyman Ward, who is most known for being Ferris Bueller's dad and Ferris Bueller's day off. Annette McCarthy, who was Evelyn on Twin Peaks. Oh, yeah. The gal that James had his affair with, and she had that dead tooth that drives me crazy. That fucking awful subplot. Yeah. Because the worst part of Twin Peaks. Yep. Yep. Diane (laughs) Salinger from Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Batman Returns. She's in Pee-wee's Big Holiday. She is Ash, maybe? She is maybe a combat android, but they never specifically say that. But she is definitely vamped up and with lots of guns and kind of weirdly cold and non-human. But I don't remember them ever actually saying explicitly that she's not human. Whatever. She's the gun muscle of this crew. 
And the big twist is Klaus Kinski, of course, the fucking German maniac who is in all the Werner Herzog classics like Fitzcarraldo and Aguirre Wrath of God, Nosferatu. He's also the villain in this awesome spaghetti western called The Great Silence. I guess, mm, no, maybe that one might be a paella western. I can't remember. Anyway. How dare you, Aaron? Yeah. (laughs) Where I fell into this is the Ripley type character, right? The, like, woman officer who stays on the ship through most of the movie, but then kind of becomes the, like, final girl is Wendy Shaw from The Burbs. Nice. So that was kind of where I came into this. It's super goofy. The alien in it is super goofy. Is it fun? Was it like a fun watch at least? Uh, even if kind even of. It like incompetently fun? Kind of. It's a little slow. I will say that. Really? Especially okay. if you already know Alien, you kind of know every beat that the movie's going to take. But it is fun watching Klaus Kinski, who is extremely volatile and strange. He is one of those actors that has that true, insane person energy, and he brings that in front of the camera as well. So it's interesting watching him kind of be this other antagonist in the movie, and there just happens to also be an alien running around as well. Yeah, because I've seen him in parts of Wrath of God, Herzog's movie, which uh, I think I saw a couple scenes like way back, maybe in high school, like during an art elective or something. And he was fucking insane in that. Mm-hmm. And that movie is wild. Yeah. The ending to that movie is what sticks in my mind because we watched the ending and it turns into like a nightmare by the end. Yeah. Him just freaking the fuck out and just going down this river, lost his fucking mind. Yeah. I could picture him being this crazy asshole in this movie too. Yeah. So this one was fun. Like I said, it's a little bit slow and it is definitely a full on ripoff of Alien, yeah. which more and more, you got to hand it to Big Jim. And everybody's like, why did James Cameron take Alien 2, Aliens with a dollar sign, in a completely different direction? This is fucking why? Because literally dozens of fucking movies ripped off Alien over the course of that seven-year period. It just got to the point where like, okay, we've done this a thousand times, have to do something new, right? So it just becomes more and more obvious like why they made the decisions to swerve in the later entries in the actual Alien franchise. Two things. The balls to make this movie in 1985 when Alien came out in 79, A, and B, can we, like, move away from the name Titan for, like, the other world or other moon where we can go live? Because I swear, Titan is the name of every sci-fi, like, we found a new planet or a new star system where humanity can survive. It's Titan. I wonder when we named Titan the moon of, is that Saturn? Or Jupiter? I believe it's one of the moons of Saturn. Yeah, moon of Saturn. Do we like yeah. have a contest in 1978? And everyone's like, that's so good. We just got to keep it. Yeah. We got to use, use that. Tight. Use that. Yeah. That movie is available on Tubi. So you can watch it for, for free. free, baby. <laughs> Vinegar Syndrome has that out on Blu-ray if you want to like own a physical copy of that movie. So yeah, it is available. Just go watch Alien. At the end of the day, yeah, go watch Alien. <laughs> just go watch Alien. It's a masterpiece. Heard of it? <laughs> the second thing I want to bring up is also on Tubi, and this is actually a movie just from last year, which I was kind of surprised to see. There's more and more like new stuff that's popping up on there. This is called Cosmic Dawn. Do you know how much I love you? This much. (gasps) Mommy? 
died when she was a little girl. She didn't die. She disappeared. Looking for something in particular? I'm just browsing. Maybe I could recommend something. Elise? She's a visionary. Her mother abducted June 8th, 1997. How do you know that? Her witnesses, just like you. Let's make our best effort to make Aurora feel at home. I was sent to find you, Aurora. Your mother said she loves you. Jump. Stop. There's someone here. Ah! Ah! Why didn't you tell me? I was protecting you. They're waiting for you. Do you know how much I love you? It is directed by Jefferson Maneo whose only other credit that I saw was something called Big Muddy, stars Camille Rowe, who is in this movie called The Deep House that I want to check out. Growing up, her and her mom were out camping. A UFO encounter happens. Her mom dis-a-fucking-peers, and she is fucked up for life because of that. And so it cuts forward to her as an adult, and she is dealing with substance abuse problems and being in and out of jail. Her aunt is taking care of her. She ends up kind of finding her way into this weird new agey cult called the Cosmic Dawn. She starts going to meetings at this local weird bookshop, and she kind of falls in with the leader of this group, played by Antonia Zegers from Tony Monero and the Club. It kind of becomes this weird Heaven's Gate thing where initially they invite her to like, oh yeah, come out to this like nature weekend retreat thing. It'll be totally great. And of course they go out and it's way out in the middle of nowhere. And it's all in this crazy 70s hippy-dippy artist-built structure that's geodesic domes underground. It's kind of like Dude, the game that you talked about, the right? The chant. Yeah, I just brought up the chant on a recent episode. This sounds like exactly the setup. Yeah, this is definitely a little more tongue-in-cheek. It is cosmic horror, given yeah. the name, obviously. But this is way more explicitly like fucking reptilian aliens oh, fuck yes little by little you start to see <laughs> that oh fuck so yes. much of the architecture of this compound that all these hippy dippy people are on is kind of reptilian the windows are all perfect circles that have a vertical slat in them like a lizard eye the doorways and arches all look like lizard faces like it looks like something that, like fucking slee stacks from land before time would have built nice. but it's basically just this whole crazy bullshit thing of her getting indoctrinated into this group little by little, but realizing like, oh, this is all some bullshit and it's dangerous and there's lots of psychotropic drugs involved and a lot of abuse. She kind of becomes friends with the woman who got her into the whole thing, but finds out that she's kind of this ordained you're the one in this group. And then there's like a third timeline too, where it is then her kicked out of the group 
with that woman's husband who also left the group, and they are basically going back to rescue her. So you're kind of getting these three different timelines all together, while this woman is also, again, trying to find out what actually happened to her mom. It's fun. I think it's well-written. The performances are pretty good. It's very tongue-in-cheek weird. And the ending definitely fucking pays off in really fun, interesting ways. So I don't know. I had fun with it. Again, it's on Tubi for free. Check it out, especially if you enjoy movies that are about cult stuff, especially Heaven's Gate-ish cult UFO stuff, especially. This goes there. So yeah, that is Cosmic Dawn. The poster for it's pretty rad. I'm not going to lie. Oh, yeah. Other thing I I would mention, too, MGMT does fucking songs for this movie. They, like, did some original songs for this specifically. I've looked at an image, and I was like, that looks like what MGMT would do if they made movies. Yeah. Uh (laughs) Yeah, like, parts of it look like an MGMT music video. Just the neon lighting and very color out of space. Super washed into blues and red. Yeah, Yeah. that's cool. So, yeah, that was a lot of fun. And the third movie is also, guess what? On Tubi. (laughs) (laughs) Tubi rules, by the way. (laughs) This is Altered from 2006. There's nothing out there, baby. Said you were holding a hostage. An extraterrestrial one. What the hell did you boys do? It's loose, ain't it? Just do what he says and secure the door. Please, no. Please, no. So this is the movie that Eduardo Sanchez, the director of Blair Witch Project, oh, wow. this was his next movie. And obviously, like, he's gone on to direct some other stuff, like Lovely Molly, I know people like, Exists, which is like a Bigfoot movie that I'm going to check out. Recently, he's done some Yellow Jackets, which Heather and I are hardcore watching that now that it's back on. But yeah, this is like the movie he made after Blair Witch. It is a group of five or so childhood friends that are all grown it starts with a couple of them in the fucking swamps of florida with like a crazy spear gun and traps and all this shit and they fucking catch an alien (laughs) as you do as happens in florida i mean florida yeah that makes sense they bring it back to one of their other buddies houses wake him up in the middle of the night and they're like yo We fucking got one. (laughs) Let's finally do to him what he did to us all those years ago. And you find out that they all had a fucking crazy abduction experience and that the friend whose house they just crashed in and then the brother of one of the other guys who's no longer with them, they both got taken, like actually taken. The other kids all got kind of turned out. But, of course, nobody fucking believed them. You know, no authorities, no adults believed what happened. They became complete fucking ostracized freaks. It's hung around their necks through their entire life. Everybody has just always thought they were fucking crazy and lying about it. And so then they made a pinky promise for vengeance with each other. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Right. As you would. The like 
brother of the kid who got taken and killed. He has also been like blamed for his brother's death this whole time. People have always thought it was him. So yeah, these guys basically catch one. They're like, we're going to fuck this thing up. And it's really interesting because at first it's kind of this, wait, is this really happening? What is really going on? But then it kind of firmly, it's, no, this is an alien on the table. What the fuck? And it just becomes a situation of what do we actually do? Because we can't just fucking torture and kill this thing. There are more out there. They will come for us. They will make Earth a target. The analogy that they give is what happens when an animal wanders into a town and kills a human? The humans get their guns and they all go out into the woods and kill every yeah. one of those animals, right? So that's kind of the whole thing is like, we can't actually fucking kill this thing. The main guy from this is Adam Kaufman who's mostly TV. He's been in Buffy, Dawson's Creek, Mad Men. That name sounds familiar, yeah. Brad William Hinkie is a character actor that I guarantee you guys have seen in stuff before. He's kind of a big burly guy. He's in The Fan, Space Jam, 13th Floor, Me, You, and Everyone We Know, Choke. He was in a couple of episodes of Lost and Justified. He's in Pacific Rim. Huey's Big Holiday, which that comes back around again, Split, and then Wounds, which I have brought up Wounds on this show during recommendations a while back. He's kind of the like main person from this cast that you would recognize, other than James Gammon, who shows up. He's the fucking sheriff. Somebody reports gunshots and all this shit, so he shows up to see what's going on. He is coach in the Major League movies, ah. so that's where most people would recognize him from, but he's also in a shit ton of westerns and TV stuff and Silver Bullet. He's in the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. There we go. That keeps coming back around. He played Teddy Roosevelt. Amazing. And he's in The Cell, which I don't remember that. I guess one day when we cover The Cell, we'll loop back around to him. One day we are going to cover The Cell. Oh, absolutely. God damn it. <laughs> but what's cool about this is there's some actual serious practical effects and fucking creature makeup and shit happening. This is a very self-contained movie. It pretty much all takes place in this dude's garage and in his front yard and on these dark middle-of-nowhere streets out in the sticks of Florida. So it feels very isolated and small. The alien design is legitimately really fucking cool. Because it is a scary-as-fuck monster alien. It is not a little gray, like, mm, hey, long yeah. fingers. Yeah, I was about to ask you, like, is it them just beating the fuck out of a gray? No. <laughs> like, 90 minutes. This thing is muscly as fuck. Okay, cool. It has yeah. giant claws and has crazy weird sideways giant jaggy teeth mouth. And it has telepathy powers and shit. Vicious as fuck. And it wrecks these dudes, because of course it's going to get loose, right? But the creature design is legitimately cool, and it's an alien-type thing that I've really only seen in cheesy video games that we played when we were kids, like Area 51. You remember how all the aliens yep. had bright green and they all had claws and shit? That's what this alien looks like. So it's kind of cool to see, like, oh, this little, like, alien that's five feet tall, but will fuck you up and, like, rip your guts out. That's exactly what this is. So, of course, yeah, like one by one, it starts taking them out. But it has a pretty cool conclusion. Interesting to kind of see how the whole thing wraps up because it didn't quite end the way I expected it to. Other thing of note is the alien in it is played by Misty Roses, who is a stunt performer and like a motion performance actress. She is fucking Amy the Gorilla in Congo. <laughs> Amazing. 
Amy wants green drop drink. No. Amy wants green drop drink. All right, all right. I swear they were married. <laughs> Should have got an Oscar. Yeah. 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 Right. <laughs> Fucking right here. Amy Love Green Job Drink. <laughs> Most notably, though, she has played a few characters on The Mandalorian. She is Queel in season one. She's the frog lady in season two. She's played a couple of random characters in season three. So, like, she's all over that show now. But yeah, this movie was pretty surprisingly cool. And unlike. A lot of the other alien movies I've seen that do the Jaws thing of less is more. We're going to hide the aliens. We're not going to show you the aliens. You're going to hear them, and there's going to be stuff knocking around the house, and you'll occasionally see something kind of moving, but like that's all you're going to see the aliens. Especially from the person that did The Blair Witch, right? That was the entire ethos of that other movie. Yeah, Yeah, that's what you would expect. And this movie is a movie. You know, it looks a little dated, obviously, because it's from 2006. So, you know, you look at it now and it's like, oh, this is like a TV show kind of movie, but like a very high end version of that. But it was pretty fun and had some really fucking cool practical effects in it. So I would definitely recommend it again. Altered from 2006. It's on Tubi. What have you got to lose? Fucking nothing. So check it out. (laughs) Cool. Well, I'll wrap up the recommendations. Two comics, and I'll start off with more serious and get to more goofy. So the first comic I'm going to uh, recommend, it was only three issues long. It was a mini series. It's already been collected. It came out on Image. The collected paperback of it was released back in October of last year or so. It's been out for a minute. It was written by James Tinian IV, who, okay. uh, again, I always joke, alongside Colin Bunn, is on a hell of a run as far as horror comics writing. The artwork of this book that I'm about to recommend is done by Gavin Fullerton, who I didn't recognize, but he's done bog bodies and bags, and his artwork in this is honestly amazing. It's called The Closet. It's a pretty straightforward concept of a four or five-year-old son seeing monsters in his closet that are coming and terrorizing him at night, and then that with emotional trauma between his parents, specifically his dad. There's not a deeper meaning there. It very much is about how childhood trauma manifests and how it's not necessarily always physical either it is a very serious story honestly this feels like a personal story i haven't read or looked up any interviews with james tidian as far as his childhood or his history personally but like it it feels like he's writing this from a place of coping with something that happened even or maybe he's just that good of a writer because he is that good of a writer i mean something is killing the children and department of truth are like two of the best books out there right now. So like he is a hell of a writer. The book mostly focuses on this little boy and his parents moving from New York to Portland. And his dad is kind of this deadbeat narcissist who's always fighting with his mom. There's hints of infidelity between them. They are emotionally and verbally abusive to each other. They kind of are neglectful to the son because of that. His dad gets this idea of how about, hey, well, your mom goes ahead of us son me and you let's go like let's take a long road trip as we drive all the way from new york to portland and the dad kind of uses it as an excuse really to like go see one of his childhood friends there's one issue when they stop at one of his friends houses and the dad is trying to like relive these glory days of when they were teenagers like let's smoke pot now that my son's in bed and stuff like that and the dude is like yeah cool but like you need to learn to grow the fuck up you have a kid now you have to be kind of responsible we can have fun but like 
don't you see what you're doing to your child and your marriage? There are moments like that, but at the same time, as the sun is kind of being neglected, every time the sun goes to sleep, these little creepy, crawly, small little imp-like monsters come out of his closet and like terrorize him. It's kind of ambiguous in whether or not it's actually happening or if this is all just kind of the trauma manifested. Yeah. But like it's still equally as fucking terrifying. Like the art is amazing. I mean, the son is literally getting choked every night by these monsters. I, I'm being very open with what's in this book because this is kind of what the story is. There's not really a twist or anything like that. It has a, kind of even an ambiguous ending. That isn't necessarily the ending you're looking for either. It is not mean spirited, but definitely dour, but very well written, very well done. It's a great comic. And again, I wanted to be open about this because there's a lot of content warnings, specifically of verbal abuse and child endangerment. Sure. Yeah. yeah. But it is a very great personal look at what abuse between parents can do to like a child at an impressionable age, like four or five years old. Once again, it was a bigger gun punch to me now that I'm a dad. So I wasn't expecting that. So that's The Closet by James Tinian. Again, it was only three issues long. You can get it pretty easily, I think. It's right on Image Comics website. The next one actually is a comic by Cullen Bunn. So like, we're getting our two comic horror superstars. This one was literally a one-shot, one issue, but it was done in the prestige format. And for those of you who don't read a lot of comics, the prestige format is usually when a comic is printed on higher quality paper, has higher quality cover. The comic itself is actually bigger. It's actually more the size of a magazine. Like it's a couple inches wider, like half an inch or so taller. So there's more comic to it for a single issue. This one came out on Aftershock Comics. This is called A Foulness in the Walls by Colin Bunn. Okay. After a guy loses his mom, he's been like taking care of his mom who has gotten older and was senile and needed help. And she finally passed away. He kind of used all his resources as an adult taking care of her. And now that she's passed away, he's basically trying to rebuild his life. And he moves into a brand new house, gets a new job, etc. The house he moves into is kind of a shithole. It's the only one he can afford. Even one of his good friends tries to talk him out of moving into the house and like maybe like staying on his couch or going someplace else for a little while. But this guy is just like, no, I'm wasted so much of my life. My mom is dead now. Like it's time to get my the ball rolling I, even if this is like a shithole it's a fixer upper and it's my own place as he's staying there he starts smelling something for like better words foul he can't find it it smells like it's coming from a wall in one of the bathrooms it kind of just devolves there like on one hand as his work life and like outside his home life is getting better like he's starting to date a girl he works with they're having a great relationship He's making money at this job, even though he's working only at a uh, grocery store or store. Every night when he goes to sleep, he wakes up to this rotting smell in the walls. And I don't want to spoil what happens, but it goes places. It goes a lot of places. And honestly, this felt like Cohen Bunn channeling Junji Ito. This felt very close to like a Junji Ito story in terms of like what is actually behind the walls, if there's even anything behind the walls. The ending is pretty great. It's a pretty good horror ending mini kind of twist that I think wraps up the whole book nicely. And again, it's just one prestige comic one shot. Like it's very quick read. The art is great. It's just a lot of fun, but it kind of capitalizes on a couple fears. Cause like it deals with rot and like loss and grief and like maybe not necessarily dealing so much with the grief as well as you think you did. There's also like themes of hunger in this. His hunger for a new life is also his downfall yeah. in accepting this house and just capitalizes on the fear. And I'm, I, I read this on a review somewhere. It's not my original thought, but have you ever gone into a room 
and just something felt off not in the sense that you felt like you're being watched but like it smelled off like you got into someone's house it's not the smell of your house so you're not familiar with it sure or something like that it's just a very basic primal fear it takes that idea and runs with it and it's just fun it's very cullen bun but again he, he it also feels a little bit like a junji ito story so again one shot comic uh after shot comics uh a foulness in the walls pretty fun horror the last thing is more tangentially horror and it's all it's actually more fun for some reason i got in my head i was i was watching some classic simpsons episodes like from season three season four in the heyday i love them they're all amazing my only gripe is that they are kind of dated animation wise, but like there's not really much you can do about that. Out of curiosity, I hopped on to Reddit and searched for episodes of modern seasons that fans say are actually just as good as the old. And there, you know, with a, with a show that's been going on this long, like well over 30 seasons now, yeah. there has to be gems all over the place, right? 100%. And sure enough, there is. And so one of the ones that kept popping up was this one called halloween of horror it's the fourth episode from season 27 it came out in october 2015 and it's actually their first canonical halloween episode that is not a treehouse of horror because their treehouse of horror episodes are their anthology episodes that's what i was about to ask i was like you mean treehouse of horror okay derek did you mess that up (laughs) yeah yeah this one actually takes place before the treehouse of horror for this season and it actually is considered canon whereas the treehouse of horror series are non-canon shorts I winded up watching the Treehouse of Horror after this episode. It's Treehouse of Horror 26, and it wasn't bad. But this episode, Halloween of Horror, is what I actually want to recommend because it was actually pretty fucking funny. It did feel more like a classic Simpsons episode. Granted, they still had elements of like New Simpsons where they're referencing like newer tech and new pop culture stuff that kind of juts out a little more than it did in the Wonder Years of the Simpsons, like in early seasons. But it was still a lot of fun, and the reason why I want to recommend it is it basically is a play on, like, The Strangers, and it kind of turns that concept on its head and makes it all pretty fun. The, the concept is that Lisa and Bart finally get to go to the Krusty Land Halloween Horror Night, which is basically, like, a joke on Halloween Horror Nights at Universal, and how intense those actually are. And so they go, and Lisa thinks, like, oh, I, I can handle it. This is no big deal. And then she gets scared out of her mind. (laughs) You remember when you were a child and you saw something that broke your brain with how much it scared you? They're kind of like making fun of that. A hundred percent. Yeah. She gets to the point where like she literally can't see Halloween decorations without getting jump scared. And like these jump scares keep popping out at her. She goes to school. There's Halloween decorations everywhere. And as she's walking to her locker, like Freddie and Jason with chainsaws are jumping out at her. Meanwhile, Homer is trying to do up his giant Halloween extravaganza like he he goes all out every year and like the whole neighborhood comes to their house because he turns it into the most decorated house on the street they go to a spirit halloween basically and they kind of get into it with these workers that are like pop-up halloween workers and it's a gag that these guys are drifters that just drift to every time there's a holiday pop-up store whether it's christmas thanksgiving or halloween they just go from one to one yeah yeah so they're like kind of criminal-ish but it's like all a joke Well, he gets them fired, uh, Homer does, and they swear revenge on him. And their revenge is basically like home invading in the way of the strangers. There's just a lot of like references to horror movies in general. The funniest fucking part was at one point, Homer opens the front door when he's knocked on it. And they're doing the strangers thing where they're standing under the streetlight and they're singing like a nursery rhyme. And the nursery rhyme is, Can't you jerks take a hint? Huh? Hmm? Hmm? (laughs) Hmm? 
like in They're doing the part of the strangers where, like, they're writing, like, red paint on the wall, like, we're inside and shit like that. The last part that I'll mention is there's a really fun gag with the actual John Carpenter Halloween theme and the end credits where, like, Maggie kind of just does the Michael Myers stare into the camera and the camera zooms in on her face as the Halloween theme is playing. It, it was just a fun episode all around. Yeah, if you're looking for, like, more modern Simpsons and, like, one that does a good job of spoofing on horror in general and the idea of Halloween fear and how you deal with that with kids halloween of horror from uh, season 27 is pretty great they're all on disney plus so that's how i watched it i'm gonna circle back around to something around this idea once we kind of start talking about the cast of this movie again and it might make y'all feel a little bit old because it definitely made me feel a little <laughs> bit old today so we'll get there in a minute <laughs> cool well uh let's go ahead and jump into our movie for this episode we are covering the fucking Burbs from 1989, Woo-hoo. horror comedy directed by Joe Dante. Here's a little taste of what you can expect. Welcome to Mayfield Place, a typical street in the Burbs. Morning, Walter! Where nothing much ever happened. Walter's dog just took a dump on Rumsfield's lawn again. Until the Clopex moved in. Clopex? Clopex. Clopex. No one goes in. No one comes out. Neighbors from hell. It was a nice place to live. He said he thinks the Clopex are evil incarnate. Well, you're much too smart to fall for that, aren't you, honey? But now... Carol! You wouldn't want to visit there. Ray, this is Walter. No! The Burbs. I'm going over the fence. And I'm not coming back till I find a dead body. Ray, do you want him to take your family, kidnap them, tear their livers out, and make some kind of satanic pate? We found Walter! We got a real problem. I hit the gas line, I'd run! God, I love this street. Tom Hanks. I think we are overreacting. No! The Burbs. It's one hell of a neighborhood. Hey, honey. I think we should move. So you said horror comedy. I want to ask both you guys, especially because you're on opposite sides of the spectrum where, Sean, you don't really watch many horror movies. Aaron, you're like a horror movie fiend. Is this a horror movie? I would say no. I would say this is a comedy with horror elements. (laughs) I think that is fair. I think it is horror in the same way that Rear Window, those movies that are about setting up the concept of is there something horrific happening? And then that is a horror concept, but they don't ever sort of have any horror payoff, right? It's yeah. like if at the end of Rear Window, you actually found out that guy was just into sculpting, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out. I asked that not because like I question why we're doing it. I, I see very much why our show is covering it, even if it isn't necessarily a horror movie, because there actually is a lot to talk about with this movie. I was surprised about suburban area and how like people go crazy in suburban areas, especially like caught in between Reagan and Clinton. And I'm getting ahead of myself, but like, I just wanted to ask that question. Just for me, there's comedy horror, which is horror movie first, but has comedic bits. And then there's horror comedy, which is comedy that has horror bits, but is mostly comedy. I'd say this is horror comedy. I'd say this is a comedy first, maybe even a black comedy in some ways. 
but it has horror elements. Granted, I do think it is, and we'll get into why, but I do think it is uh, pretty relevant for our show yeah. to do now. I would also say, too, I mean, Joe Dante is one of the masters of horror, right? He is one of those guys that we always think about and refer to. I would say, though, he doesn't always make horror movies, but he does pretty consistently always make comedies and satires. And so that's kind of where I come down on this one. Like, Gremlins is a horror movie that has comedic elements in it, Yeah, right? Yeah, But like, Inner Space, Small Soldiers, yeah. you know, some of the other stuff that he's done over the course of his career, you wouldn't necessarily call that horror, right? And so that's kind of where I feel like in this one, this to me is definitely the best blending of those things. And I, th- yeah. I think that's where... Dante has always worked for me personally is he takes genre elements and mixes them with the base of comedy. So whether that genre element is sci-fi, family movies, or horror, I mean, there's pretty hard-edged shit like The Howling. Piranha. Yeah, super goofy stuff like Piranha that's very satirical and tongue-in-cheek, you know, all the way through to literally Looney Tunes back in action, which is delightful, by the way. Honestly, I think it's better than Space Jam as far as like an actual movie goes. Having looked at this list of hits, and I'm sure we'll get into it, it's made me be like, maybe I should go back, right? It's time to reevaluate every Dante movie and every Brendan Fraser movie. And now's the time. Yeah. Yeah. Good point for right now, at least. Looney Tunes back in action is that sweet spot of both of those guys. But yeah, Dante, as we kind of discussed on the Gremlins episode, even though he is not. A filmmaker like, let's say, Carpenter or Hooper or Wes Craven or Romero, right? The other masters of horror, where they are all very specific about this is what I'm trying to say with this movie, with this story. Not all their movies are like that, but they're all directors who are very specifically motivated by their personal beliefs and politics and current events and those kind of things. Dante is sneakily the guy who still infuses a lot of that, but you don't immediately like see it on the surface for what it is. You know, like this movie specifically has a lot to do with the 80s Reagan era Cold War paranoia, but just a lot of the like are my neighbors the same as me? Do they believe the same things as me? Are we on the same wavelength? This is more a more comedic what's he building in there by Tom yes. Waits. That's yes. basically what, if that Tom Waits song was a movie. This movie is also very much looking at how quickly and easily paranoia and rumors and shit can just spread through the populace and through media and everything else. I mean, like this is very much a comment on the satanic panic 100%. that was going on during this time. Yeah. It's very sneakily satirical, but that's kind of the best type of satire. Is like you don't really see it until you start peeling those layers back. So I've always appreciated Dante because you can totally show his movies to kids. The Burbs was a movie we watched non-fucking-stop growing up. It was on cable constantly, and it was a movie that our whole family fucking loved because the cast is great. Tom Hanks is obviously the dad of America. So it was a movie that we saw all the time. 
shit like again the chanting and like this is walter ah all of that was just memes in my family all growing up you know so this movie we watched a ton small soldiers was huge gremlins was huge we loved inner space i still love inner space there's people who were like oh i don't get inner space that movie's fucking great joe dante was very much a director that we watched all the time growing up and it's only that you know getting older that you start to peel back those layers and really see how yeah. fucking smart it all really is under the surface. He feels a little overlooked and underappreciated, and he honestly feels like he could be a director's director, right? Because his run is pretty impeccable if you actually look at it. Yeah, and it's disappointing, too, because in that same sense, sorry to interrupt you there, but... Oh, no, go for it. When was the last time Carpenter made a movie, right? When was the last time Dante, like, made something substantial? Yeah. Did Wes Craven really get any serious projects? Well, I guess he had Scream 4, like, right before he died, but... It's a shame that Dante is not still making higher profile studio stuff because he totally could be. You know, I don't know that he wants to. He might just be fine chilling, but he seems like the type of director that would gladly still be working if anybody was fucking offering him a budget. You know, what's funny is that he kind of makes perfect four quadrant movies, right? He makes movies that should work. Kids can watch them, they're funny. They've got some edge or some spook to them. They've got something to say, right? They, they are kind of perfect for that kind of movie. Yeah, absolutely. You know, overall, as far as themes of this movie, so, you know, kind of like I mentioned a second ago, this movie deals with maybe the most relatable fear that we've discussed on our show, maybe a couple of other times, but that whole idea of are your weird neighbors up to something? And this whole idea of a local boogeyman or an urban legend or this weird shit happened, man. I remember this one time this guy just fucking snapped and did whatever. Like, Well, it, I mean, I'm sure there are other countries that can relate, but it feels also like in a very American fear that this movie is capitalizing on. America, suburbia, all of us to an extent have grown up in it. And this is exactly the type of shit that at least I encountered. Like my neighbors would talk shit all the time about certain people weirdos that lived on their street or a street over and granted there was actually weird shit that happened like i remember in one of the bigger houses burned down because it was actually a meth lab and it was in a middle class to upper middle class neighborhood so shit like that did happen but then at the same time a lot of it was just kind of like the monsters are doing maple street it was just a lot of paranoia for no reason that was egged on another thing i would pair this movie with actually is this movie felt a lot like fright night to me yeah. Except if Fright Night is more like the actual horror, this is more the, the comedic side of it. Well, they're both riffing on Rear Window, yeah. like Sean was saying. I mean, it's it's very much still that same exact thing. I love just Jim Dante in interviews and shit over the years. He was saying that when he got this script, he immediately related to it because he was like, oh, yeah, growing up in my grandmother's neighborhood, there was totally the fucking weird family with the weird house and they didn't take care of their yard and they always had shit piled up on their porch. People basically never saw him, and we jokingly called him, like, the ghost family. Yeah. So he was like, I totally got the script, and I understood the appeal, and then literally everybody that they talked to through the course of getting this movie going, all the other producers, everybody else was just like, oh, yeah, no, I totally remember having somebody like that in our neighborhood. 
it's just such a universal thing. <laughs> and hey, I've been watching, uh, like I said on a past episode, that you and Nowaki rightfully shamed me for watching Hoarders. Uh, a lot of times where shit's just piled up in the uh, front lawn is what's happening yeah. behind the doors, too. It is so funny to watch people take what is clearly just someone being a little off, and then it spins into story, into myth, into urban myth, into all yeah. these sorts of things. And something as innocuous as like, that guy was a little rude once. It's like, there's a serial killer that lives on our block, right? And that sort of yeah. progression is so real in every sort of little society. And especially when you confine it to suburbia, it feels claustrophobic in that way. Even like with the zoom in, right? Yeah. When it zooms in, it's like, Everything in this movie is going to take place right here in this cul-de-sac. Everyone is kind of condensed in. When people leave, they go somewhere else and then they come back. Everything's right here. What's going to happen? You're closed in with your neighbors, which I think is is fascinating. Yeah, there's one street in and out. Yeah. And like, I mean, the idea of just you're walking your dogs and yeah, like that person mouthed off. Didn't even mouth off to you. You heard the mouth off on the phone outside, but it bothered you because they're outside and not keeping it inside. And like, I think another fear to take this idea and run with it a little bit, especially if this movie brings up, is that idea of like somehow met maybe whatever drama or bullshit's happening inside their house is going to spill out to the rest of us and yeah. affect the entire street. That's why we have to make it our business what's happening behind their closed doors. It's almost like this unchecked, unofficial set of rules between neighbors and how that can actually be destructive yeah another thing i really appreciate about this movie i love how all the men because like another thing this movie is smartly like making fun of is again the late 80s idea of you don't listen to your wife like no one actually listens to their wives like all that wife humor shit that like has definitely aged poorly now but like even during this movie joe dante is making fun of but i'll tell you one thing when my wife does have sex she screams oh especially when i walk in on her <laughs> I mean, the last time I made love to my wife, it was ridiculous. <laughs> Nothing was happening. I looked at her, I saw what's the matter. Can't you think of anyone either? <laughs> now you can, I know my wife cheats on me. Every time I come home, the parrot says, quick, out the window, you know? Because <laughs> all the men, even the like antagonists, all the men in this movie, are fucking idiots. Yeah. Even Tom Hanks's character, and he is a relatively good guy, like when they're in that other neighbor's house, and he's like, no, we're not stealing shit. No, leave it alone. We shouldn't be breaking entering. Like, let's leave it as is. Even he is a fucking idiot who's not actually, like, listening to his wife. That's why I really appreciate it about this is, like, all acting like kind of morons. And it's critiques of different kinds of conservative men in different subtle or unsubtle ways. And it's very funny. Like there's the military guy and there's the macho neighbor and there's the bro kid who is drinking with that guy. We'll get into it. Well, I have questions. (laughs) Yeah. I love to the scene where art and Rumsfeld are like hollering at Ray, Tom Hanks from the driveway. And Carrie Fisher just comes out and it's like, Sorry, boys. My husband's not feeling well. He has to stay in his room. Please, Carol, let him come out. Come on. Please let him come out. Come on. I think that I have given you my answer. Man, just the childishness is (laughs) fucking hilarious. It felt like telling two kids that their friend is sick and can't come out. Yeah. But, uh, Sean, the thing I wanted to ask you, and we usually lead off with this with a a guest. This is kind of your pick in the way that we were going to record this episode anyway. Aaron really wanted to do this one, and I just had remembered. I don't even remember when. I just know that a couple times here and there you brought up that The Burbs 
is like one of your favorite movies. I was like, okay, well, let's get you on. This is a good opportunity for you to come on. You haven't been on since Tremors. I'm sure we maybe have even already touched on it a little bit, but what is it about the Burbs that you love so much that you wanted to come on and be on this episode for specifically? Much like the Tremors and movies like this, that like soft pitch, that sort of like genre comedy piece that dips its toe into horror, but only because there's fun to be had there, not because of the horror of it all. The Burbs is a movie that is of a place in time. It's built around practical effects and practical spoofs and pratfalls and the sort of stuff that I really love when it comes to this sort of horror. Not like gushy monster guts, but more of just the wind blowing at all of their faces and like a bunch of stuff going or a porch that breaks and he puts his foot through it. That stuff gets me. I love a pratfall. I love a physical effect. I love a physical set. I love all of that sort of interaction, which is really key in this time period. And I think Joe Dante just speaks to a version of Americana cinema of the people that all were in that horror world, but decided to do different things with it. And it's the thing that Joe Dante decided to do with it was what I love, right? It's genre comedy with some other pieces and and other places uh, with a a really direct sense of what it wants to talk about. But let's be fun. Let's not be dour, right? We can be a critique without being dour, which I think is so needed and necessary and fun. And your satire doesn't have to be sort of, you don't have to knock someone over the head with it and be like, don't you get it? Yeah. Your satire can be fun. Yeah. And that doesn't seem like, of course, the satire can be fun. But some yeah. people, when they're like, we're setting up a serious satire, this is to make you think about bad things. And you're going to be sad about these bad things. And it's like, no, you don't have to be. It's fine. Yeah. And your satire can also be biting and not mean. Yeah. That's kind of another thing. Like, there's a lot of biting yeah. satire in this. But it never feels mean spirited while you're no, watching not at it. All. There's nothing that feels like Verhoeven on one end, Sorkin on the other. You don't really feel either of those extremes in this. It's just kind of right in the middle where it needs to be, to where, you know, like you said, I think it's very accessible satire. Even as kids, you get, oh, as soon as they step over into the neighbor's crappy lawn, the wind starts blowing in their faces and the leaves go crazy and the neighborhood goes nuts, right? And as soon as they step out, it goes away. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> like a storm appears and then yeah. disappears. Yeah. And even as a kid, you get, oh, I've seen that in other things. This is making fun of that. I yeah. get it. There's just goofy stuff in it like that that I love. It's just the right amount of slapstick goofy but then goes pretty fucking dark in a lot of ways. Yeah, by the end, even at the moments where it couldn't maybe to take the turn to like being mean spirited, it takes the piss out of everything because for every time Art is just like, oh, wives are the worst, he's getting himself electrocuted and falling off a power line, yeah. being an idiot. 100%. But the other thing, to go back to that scene where they're like, finally go knock on the door. Talk about a perfect blend of comedy and horror, but with pratfalls, because like you said, they step, make a hole in it. They knock on the door. The nine falls down and makes it six, six, six on the door. And then they like ring the doorbell and then the doorbell comes off and it's filled with bees. And then they just get attacked by a swarm of bees. This movie made me realize I hadn't watched a Tom Hanks movie in quite a long time because Tom Hanks is physical and he can freak out as well as the rest of them. I forget how good he is when he's screaming and how fun 
he is to watch when he's like screaming in someone's face why they're a fuck up and he's like lost his patience. All that stuff is so good. Like I forget how good of an actor Tom Hanks is and then I watch The Burbs and I'm reminded. And how good of a comedic actor and a physical comedic actor he is. A, his timing is so fucking good for everything and he's going up against Rick Dukaman is very, very like big, right? Like I literally wrote in my notes Rick Dukeman is the Charlie Day of this era. Yeah. Just watching Tom Hanks kind of react to him, the timing is so fucking good. But then there's also just things like his freak out at the end where he picks up the gurney after flopping around on it and slings the gurney in the back of the ambulance and then like flops out onto it. That was all improv. Hilarious. And he just stays on his belly for the rest of that scene. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Amazing. Yeah. I love to, right before that, the moment where he stumbles out of the exploded house and just kind of has that moment of looking (laughs) around from being on the porch. And it's just that look that you have after you've had a long fucking night of drinking and you finally get home and you like walk in your front door and you just kind of, look around but then he like goes to walk down the steps and just bu- 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 hover slides down all three steps <laughs> just the timing of all that is so fucking good after this guy was like legitimately nearly killed in this fiery gas explosion one part that made me laugh out loud and like i actually rewinded it twice and rewatched it and it basically sums up the whole idea of what this movie actually is saying uh, or at least one of the major themes it's it's capitalizing on after all that shit's happened, Ray does that yelling monologue at art. You could probably just splice the scene in here, Aaron. You know, someday they're going to dig up the back of that yard and they're going to find the rest of that skeleton to go with that femur. Oh, it might not be Walter, but it's going to be some sort of torture. Shut up, Art! Shut up! God, you don't know when to quit. Look at me! I'm a shell of a man because of you, Art. <laughs> you leave! Now, now, now! Soldier! You leave him alone! Get off that case already! They didn't do anything to us! They didn't do anything to us! All right, so they're different, so they keep to themselves. Can you blame them? They live next door to people who break into their house and burn it down while they're gone for the day. Remember what you were saying about people in the burbs, Art? People like Skip, people who mow their lawn for the 800th time and then snap? Well, that's us. It's not them. That's us. We're the ones who are vaulting over the fences and peeking in through people's windows. We're the ones who are throwing garbage in that street and lighting fires. We're the ones who are acting suspicious and paranoid. We're the lunatics. Us. It's not them. It's us. I don't know what to say. What, do you want me to move? And then Ray, like, charges at him to strangle him. That shit cracked me up so much. But yeah, like, that scene was so fucking funny because it's peak Tom Hanks, gone through shit, physically been tortured, losing his patience. And then he snaps and charges at Art after delivering this whole monologue, which I also wonder if he improved any of that, too. I mean, it sounds like it was maybe in the script, but, like, I wonder if his delivery was improved in any ways. We'll circle back around to that thought in a minute. Yeah, not only is it hilarious, but it also, again, is bring up the whole idea behind this of how neighbors can go crazy thinking that other neighbors are out to get them or doing something nefarious. Yeah, so let's kind of use that as a way to slide into the second kind of main thing I want to talk about, which is, again, just the idea of neighbors spreading rumors and paranoia and how quickly 
bullshit like this can just explode, right? And again, this being like a comment on all the satanic panic stuff going through the media. <laughs> First of all, they jump to the conclusion very fast, or Art does at least, because <laughs> Art is clearly the kind of person who wants to fucking believe in anything, everything oh, crazy. Okay. And as soon as he sees anything to validate it, it's done. It's all real. But he jumps pretty fucking hard to the conclusion that Walter was a human sacrifice. It just goes from like, we don't know what happens to Walter to the neighbors fucking killed him in a satanic ritual. <laughs> 100% right away. I love too, like, where did he get this book on fucking demonology? That, yes. Satanic yes. rituals and demonology and all that. Where did this book come from? Did he get it from the library? Did he just have it? Right. That's the kind of stuff that you have to wonder. Real life, all these people who like came out of the woodwork as like, I'm a Satanologist. I, I know all there is to know about demons and fighting the evil ones. So how are you accredited exactly? Like, where did you learn this knowledge from? How are you like you see all those daytime talk shows? From the 80s and early 90s, where it's Satanology expert. I Let me to... ask you more specifically. All right. I want to move away from your deeply held, sincere religious beliefs. I want you to talk to me as a cop now. All right. Why is this man a satanic killer rather than a thrill killer? Because the simple fact is, when Sean went there, uh, as, as, as in my book, The Satan Hunter, the first chapter deals with the entire story. When Sean went there, he worshipped before an altar there in his home. He worshipped at his altar. He went through blood sacrifices, eating, drinking his own blood, writing in his blood. He went there with, with, one, with one thing in mind, and that was to kill the Circle K convenience store clerk because he had broken every one of the Ten Commandments except thou shall not commit murder. No money was taken. Absolutely no money was taken in that crime. I appreciate that, but he killed his mother. Right. And he's got to suffer the consequences for it. Let's take a break. Okay, cool. Who said you're an expert in all of this? D did a lot of them turn out to be hucksters anyway that were just oh, yeah. making money off of the, the craze? Yeah, absolutely. The vast majority of them were complete grifters, and then the other percent that weren't were like, just your usual garden variety, crazy evangelical pastors and stuff. Again, 100%. what qualifies you to say that you're an expert in any of this, right? Like empirically, what qualifies you? The word of God, Aaron. But That's just this whole idea that they make such a hard jump to it's a fucking satanic ritual murder is wild, but is it unrealistic? In that book, I like. I also thought that that was a wild twist. It reminds me of like sort of like the satanic Bible that some kids had in high school and things like that, like of silly levels of demonology and things of that nature. But the prop, it's the theory and practice of demonology is written by Julian Carswell. Yes. And that's a character from Night of the Demon, which is another reference to a movie called The Night of the Demon. Yes, which is a rad-as-fuck movie if either of y'all have not seen it. I have not. A 1957 British horror movie. Yes. It hasn't come up in my list of things to watch. Yeah, it's pretty fucking rad. It's literally just a guy who is a skeptic 
And he gets wrapped up in all this shit, and then this occult guy who supposedly can summon a demon, and that's how he got rid of somebody. I googled it, and it looks like a fucking kaiju. This is metal as hell. The demon from that is awesome as fuck. Well, and to that point, I I do love the references that this movie throws at you for horror, because, like, Art talks about the Sentinel. We cover the Sentinel, what was that, our, like, third episode, Aaron? Yeah. You'd think the character would reference the Exorcist or something. No, the Sentinel of all demon movies that you could reference. The Exorcist is referenced in it. Uh, as well. <laughs> the Exorcist also is reference, yeah. Later when he's flipping through stations... Texas Chainsaw 2, The Exorcist, yeah. So he flips past Texas Chainsaw 2, he flips past The Exorcist, and Race with the Devil, which is also a rad-as-fuck movie that we will absolutely cover one of these days. What's interesting, though, is in the UK version of this movie... The Exorcist and Texas Chainsaw 2 at this time were video nasties. They were banned. Ooh, okay. So they had to like literally re-edit this scene in the movie to cut those out for the UK release. Do you know what was edited in? I think they just or cut, did they just cut the whole scene? Out. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that was definitely like, oh, you just straight up are lifting these other movies and putting them in here. But frankly, again, Dante does the same exact thing in Small Soldiers and Gremlins just wholesale puts other movies into them that it's kind of riffing on. So he's very, very good about doing that and kind of putting in weirdly specific references. Well, the Sentinel was like such an interesting thing to bring up too, because the characters even recognize like the parallel between a neighborhood watch and like a Sentinel who watches the portal to hell. Like that's very much a riff that I think Dante chose on purpose to go back to that book of demons. I wrote down or I texted it to myself something along the lines of like this is a poor man's lesser key of solomon (laughs) which is an actual like book of demonology a grimoire and i think sean you had brought this up uh either earlier before we were recording how like this movie kind of also subtly like pokes fun at the satanic panic that was going on especially during the dream because it's almost like an over-exaggerated satanic ritual to the point where it's comedic it's i mean men in robes with demon horns with rakes and shovels and it's truly one of the funniest things that I've ever seen. Solid yeah. Halloween getup, honestly. Yeah, it looked almost too practical to where it's to the point where it was, oh, all these Satanists just shopped at, like, again, Spirit Halloween. Yeah, 100%. And the Lowe's next door. <laughs> yeah. Joe Dante, again, not mean-spirited, just kind of poking fun at not just Satanic Panic, but, like, even just the idea of horror movies, like, with Satanic yeah. rituals in them, too. My favorite moment of that nightmare sequence is when they show Walter and he's got the, like, axe in his head yeah. and then he's holding the fucking poodle and the poodle also has a little axe in its head. Amazing. <laughs> that shit will never not make me laugh which by the way I was gonna save this for discussing like cast and everything but Darla the poodle has maybe the best career ever. Darla the poodle her debut was in Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Nice. She's in this movie. She's the fucking poodle from Silence of the Lambs, and she's in Batman Returns, so good job, (laughs) Darla. Excellent poodle. Yeah, I forgot about that bit, too. Again, that's such a, like, simple but funny thing to throw in there, just, like, a simple detail, like, let's put an axe in the poodle, too. Who is that needlessly cruel to do that to the poodle as well? It's so funny, and it's a little tiny axe. Yeah, it's (laughs) It's the fact that it is a little tiny baby axe is the best part of that. Overall, it's interesting to kind of how you expect the structure of this movie to kind of go one way. You expect by the end that everything might be fine. There might be some explanation to all of this. There is some rational 
you know, nothing was actually going on. These people are just crazy. And, oh, we just all need to get along and hug and kumbaya and just get to know our neighbors better. That's the American way. Like you would think that there would be something like that again, especially during the 80s at this point, like everything was just kind of so sugary in that yeah. way. I love the fact that Dante is just like, nah, fuck it. They are fucking weird. They are killing people. Like, they were exactly the fucking nightmare that you expect them to be. But they arrived to that conclusion not at all in the way that they should have. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. By being maniacs. Yeah. Yeah. By being, like, maybe more insane than the actual maniacs. I do like that kind of the domino that really starts that is, again, and I think Carrie Fisher's character herself even says we could learn more about them just by knocking on the door with cookies than like you idiots have been doing for like a week now. And that's exactly kind of what happens. Granted, it's a red herring because like they find the toupee and the mail for Walter, but it does cause them to stumble into the discovery that they are actually like monsters. Well, granted, right before that, too, I love Carrie Fisher's line. Now, before somebody falls off a roof or sets themselves on fire, I think we should go over there, knock on their door and invite ourselves in for a nice neighborly chat. And then that's like exactly, <laughs> exactly. what's <ends> happening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Again, go back to Joe Dante, like not getting enough credit. He knows what he's doing. He's very clever with uh, a lot of the setups and gags that he's throwing out. I mean, even Corey Feldman being just the little stinker who's kind of just poking them, leading them on in a in yeah. that kind of teenage young adult shithead way where he's manipulating them. He knows he's manipulating the adults. And the adults kind of want to be cool with him. Yeah, can we take a poll? How old is Corey Feldman's character? What are we dealing with? Is this a high schooler? Is this a young adult? I am going to say he is college age. Yeah, I I thought he was maybe 19, 20 college age. Not quite 21, but like pretty much there. Because he mentions that his parents are out of town. right? And that's why he's painting the house while they're away. He's not really doing a good doing job a of that. Absolutely <laughs> hilariously slapstick bad job of that. He is drinking with the other guy beers on their porch. But that's something that I did. Yeah. I remember like our neighbor next door who we're super close with. I used to like go over there and hang out with them when I was 15, 16. He let me have a beer. Like that's like the cool yeah. neighbor thing to do. But I do think he's either just graduated high school or he's early stages of college is where he's at. So funny. It's like, such a funny character. Well, and I, I love that he could be doing anything like he could go to the movies. He has this girlfriend who's like, let's go see a movie. He could be watching TV. He has the house to himself and he chooses to watch these idiots try and break into someone yeah. else's house. They understand how entertaining the burbs is as a movie and they're decided to watch it. Yeah. 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 yeah he, he says like two or three times. God, I love this street. There's also <laughs> definitely something relatable about just wanting to be up in the neighborhood business and gossip. And there's always those neighbors that are like that. This is maybe a uniquely Southern thing. I don't fucking know. But I definitely remember like a lot of people's older grandmothers and aunts just chilling, watching TV, but with the police scanner going next to them and just like listening to like dispatches and shit. You know, there's just something about, I want to be in this shit. I want to be in the business of what's going on in the neighborhood. So yeah, Corey Feldman's immediate, oh, hell no. Y'all come over here and let's just chill and party and watch the nonsense unfold. Very relatable. And I mean, he's right. But I mean, even, even in a modern sense, we now have, what is it, the Citizens app? It's supposed to like help those who like are living in cities and stuff to avoid danger. <laughs> it's really just very racist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
It's like next door or next door, whatever. Like the name, I care. Yeah, it must be next door. Everyone's just really looking at it to just add a morbid curiosity of like, oh, someone was shot six blocks from here. Interesting. And it's kind of a similar situation. Like to that point, this is a vein I wanted to tap into with this movie. I am curious to see. I mean, we've, we're already talking about how it's aged since 1989. It's been a long time since 1989. I'm curious to see how it's going to age even more, especially with Zoomers. Because owning a house and like going out to the suburbs does not seem like something that the younger generations, A, are interested in, and B, have any concept of... Ability to... Yeah, know, or ability there, financially, yeah. yeah. I wonder how this movie will play with even younger audiences. The idea of the suburb, is it going the way of Blockbuster in a certain way? Just this relic of the 80s, 90s that we all know and are very familiar with, but like to someone born in 20, 2010, like they have no fucking concept of. I think a lot of younger people watching this movie will 100% understand the concept because that's how they grew up, not that's how they transition into adulthood yeah. necessarily. You know, a lot of parents and adults that watch this movie when it came out, okay, yeah, you could say they relate to it because they are living in the suburbs. Obviously, that's changing, like you were saying. So I think it's one of those things, they'll all recognize a lot of what the movie is doing from the standpoint of, oh yeah, this is what it was like when I was a kid. Yeah, and I would also say this movie is interestingly different than a lot of other movies about suburbia because a lot of other movies about suburbia are about children's experience of suburbia yeah that's true yeah so you've got like latchkey kids you've got the sort of kids on bikes kids goonies, on bikes kind of goonies vibe like that is the experience of suburbia but this is talking about the adult experience of suburbia which is sort of creating this artificial world where there isn't that much going on so you invent what's going on in a really sort of interesting way I think that version or vision might not correlate as strongly in in future generations, but I think that that sort of experience of children in suburbia is so strongly tethered to the rest of culture that that will never go away. But this sort of adult experience of suburbia, I don't know. Yeah. See, I I could see it. I mean, at least for the more city people who live or work in larger cities, I think the idea of actually like achieving this suburbia will kind of die out with the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. But like, yeah, I think y'all are right. I think people at least still be able to understand the cultural aspect of it all, right? I think most people can culturally understand Blockbuster, even if they were too young for a Blockbuster. So that's kind of where I I met this movie. It it just was fascinating because it was hitting on so many themes and fears that are still relevant today. Again, we're finding time and time again, Aaron. Unfortunately, maybe even more relevant today than ever before in many negative aspects. Another kind of fear, and this kind of is more the adult side of things that this movie kind of banks on, is the fear of boredom. At the end yeah. of the day, they're all doing this out of just middle class suburbia boredom. Yeah. Again, going back to his rant at the end of, I've been mowing my lawn for the 800th time when I decide to snap. That's kind of what the fear is there. And I mean, listeners, if you can't tell, this isn't a scary movie in the sense that it's scary. but. <laughs> It's a good starter horror adjacent thing, I think, like you both said for kids. But like, there's also just a lot of adult look in the mirror sort of moments, especially like if you were born Gen X and even boomer age and like you are more familiar with suburbia and like how the dark side of that rears its head. But most of the time it's our own doing. We're the ones that create 
the chaos at the end of the day. It's a very interesting look at it. Again, Joe Dante being more clever than he's given credit. Yeah, I, I think there's also some really interesting adult themes that are being touched on, but not fully explored. Like suburbia as a concept is something that's so built towards a racial distinction of place. Yeah. Places were excluding African-American and people of color throughout yeah. the history of the creation and establishment of suburbia. Homeowner associations are like at its core racist. A hundred percent. Redlining, <laughs> yeah. all yeah. of that. Intentionally built towards that element. And it's interesting that this movie, again, entirely white, and they're using the sort of Eastern European otherness that we don't really, I think, conceptualize as much today as was maybe apparent in the 80s. But uh, there's a line where Tom Hanks asks, like, what are we going to do, burn a cross in their front yard? He, like, straight up says that. And I was like, holy yeah. shit. Yeah, that, one, that line <laughs> kind of stuck out for wild. me, too. <laughs> uh, which is interestingly talking a little bit about that, like, history of suburbia and what does suburbia mean and what is the role of racial politics in a, in a place like this. But, of course, doesn't really steer towards it in any serious way. But I think brings it up in a way that lets you think about it and then brings it into the overall conflicts and interests that happen in suburbia. Even the couple lines where they're like, Kopech, what is that, Slavic? And then he's like, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like even just something, like a simple throwaway line like that. And again, that goes back to more like the Eastern European otherness that, was more popular around 80s, 90s. Yeah, Cold War. But yeah, you're right. Like that burning cross line was like, I remember I was just kind of keyed into the movie and I like paused it for so I was like, did he just say what I thought he said? And then yeah, sure <laughs> did. Yep. Now, Sean, you said off air that you had something like involving legality with the production. Yeah. So like, what was that about? This is one of my favorite little pieces because during the scene with the garbage, when they're going over to check with the garbage. I know what you're about to say. Yeah, yeah. They casually mention that, no, no, you could look through other people's garbage. That's legal. As they're like ripping through and then the garbage people help in as they rip through all of their stuff. And in 1988, when this movie was being written, was the same time that Greenwood versus California gets to the Supreme Court, which is an important court case that sets the precedent that garbage is totally fine for police to go through, that you should not have any preconceived notion that your garbage is your private property anymore once you've put it into garbage pails. Once it's in garbage bins, it's free game for anyone to snoop on. The actual phrase is you should understand that those materials will be and could be snooped on. And it's like, yeah. what? Well, the other bit of legality, and this is what I thought you were going to mention, it is 100% legal to go through garbage when it is still on the curb. Yeah. Now, where they fuck up in this movie is they start pulling garbage out of the truck. Now, once it is actually in the garbage truck, it is officially property of the city at that point. 100%. And so then it is no longer legal to dig through. I did not know any of this. Wow. That's how nitpicky laws are. Yay. And again, I love that this trash just stays on the streets. Fuck it. And it's fine. Yeah, it's a whole thread of constitutional law where what constitutes snooping yeah. versus what is a legal search versus what goes up against the Fourth Amendment and what doesn't. Yeah. Fascinating. A little bit of D.C. constitutional law. Yeah. Well, it's the reason why you've heard in the last couple of years so many serial killers getting caught 
because they've gone through their fucking trash on the curb and got DNA samples or fingerprints or whatever. The fucking Golden State Killer was literally caught because they just pulled some of his fucking trash. Because <laughs> it's trash. And compared it to like a hit on, you know, the 23andMe database. It happens. So yeah, that's totally a thing. Man. Yeah, I didn't know that. I just always assume because what is it? A federal crime to open someone else's mail up, right? Yes. But like then when you think there's kind of a similar thing there by digging someone's trash, but nope, I could totally walk down the street and go into my neighbor's trash. Great. Yep. And yell at them. This is legal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. I'm protected by the Supreme Court. They're even crazier than they were then. Greenwood versus California. Yeah. 1988. <laughs> yeah. Just don't start yelling anything about being a sovereign citizen and I guess you're good. <laughs> Diplomatic immunity. <laughs> Diplomatic immunity. It's just been revoked. So this would be probably a good spot to transition into discussing some of the production history of this movie. So the script was written by Dana Olson. This was inspired by his childhood years growing up in the suburbs and often hearing grisly tales of people in the community who had finally snapped and committed awful crimes, which, again, very relatable. Everybody growing up has some story of that kind of shit in their neighborhood and in their city. The script ended up at Imagine Films with Larry Bresner and Brian Grazer, who immediately pegged Dante as a perfect director, given, as we've discussed, his tendency to kind of blend horror and comedy and satire together. Like I mentioned, Dante really loved the script and identified with the premise. Well, and kind of an interesting thing, I didn't know that that was where a lot of the inspiration for this script came from, because at the same time, wasn't this kind of right smack dab in the middle of also people going postal? Yes. So it's like interesting, like, again, this kind of end of the Cold War, we're not really sweating the Cold War anymore, even though it's technically still happening. Reaganomics, and people are just kind of snapping in their workplaces just from all the stress and like repeated nature of the stress. It's interesting that that kind of is what also was bleeding into the suburbia. And like the news bump, right? You have yeah. like the dawn of 24-hour news. Yeah. It's just, just happened, right? And so those sorts of stories, like going postal, becomes a national constant sort of piece. Yeah. And they hit late night shows and things like that. So you have those sorts of things really amplifying those stories. Yeah. I, I remember, I think it was a recommendation or something I brought up a while ago on a past episode. I watched a documentary on the concept of going postal and... One of the parts of the, the documentary is they showed throughout the late 80s and early 90s and even into the early 2000s, just the pop culture references of going postal. And it was like The Simpsons. It was fucking Conan late night making jokes about it. I forgot how much it was like a term when we were kids to the point where even we would joke about it, not necessarily fully know the meaning behind it. And like even in kids shows, it would pop up mm -hmm. and it was just kind of interesting. Like and granted, I haven't heard that term in a long time, at least in general pop culture. But it was definitely there through the 90s, a thousand percent. Yep. So what's wild is, as far as like the production of this movie, this is one of the few cases where everything just kind of worked out. And there wasn't really a whole lot of drama or hangups or problems on the set. I mean, that's kind of it. Joe Dante runs a tight ship. Basically. <laughs> and a lot. It's a lot movie. Right? Yeah. It's like so clearly all done on the same 
lot. They don't change things that much. One of my favorite yes. gags is the trash when it's pulled through. And then later in the... The trash is just still there the entire rest of the it's movie. It's just still there yeah. for the rest of the movie. No one's just, dealing with it in any yeah. way, it's shape, or form. Hysterical. <laughs> hysterical. So you're exactly correct. The entire movie is filmed on the Universal Studios backlot. You can tell it is exactly a backlot. Once you see a backlot and you take a studio tour, you'll be able to like pick out a backlot anytime that you see it in a movie or a TV show. And tons of stuff has filmed on the same exact backlot. Specifically, the Munsters, Leave It to Beaver, and Desperate Housewives all filmed on this exact chunk with these exact houses. But what's wild is they filmed this movie in sequence. Because like you said, once the trash gets spread everywhere, the trash stays there. Yeah. But yeah, they shot this over 10 weeks, and they specifically did it during the 1988 writer's strike, which is interesting because that's about to happen again. So they like rushed this script through. They locked it off and got the script fully approved and started production on it. Now, what's wild is because of the strike, Olsen, the writer, was prohibited from officially adding any kind of additional content or dialogue or punch-ups or anything. So to get around the WGA rules about this, Dante cast him as an actor in the movie. He's just like one of the cops at the end so that he could be consulted whenever they needed. And then the rule and atmosphere on set was improv jazz session do whatever the fuck you want you know so that's why this movie has that kind of loose and fun feel to it everyone seems like they're having a good time oh yeah everyone seems to know exactly what kind of movie they're making and is having a good time and like it's kind of amazing because i don't know where like i mean Corey feldman jesus christ his career has been a fucking mess but like i don't know where he was personally because he's had a lot of like we'll talk about that in a crazy minute. shit i don't know where carrie fisher was because carrie fisher also had like a tumultuous career we'll talk about that in a minute yeah. but like they both seem like they're very much on top of their game in this movie and legitimately seem like they're enjoying themselves during this movie and to that point everybody got along apparently awesome. rick dukamon and tom hanks had a little bit of uh, they didn't quite get along they were a little bit abrasive with each other but they are so good together in this movie they are that's so good crazy together. to me yeah but i think that's part of why that works because tom hanks the character in the movie ray is friends with art because they live next to each other and they kind of have to coexist but you can tell he's just always kind of annoyed by him as well over art yeah and just over <laughs> his bullshit right so i think the dynamics between them help that feel more realistic but Overall, everybody had a good time making this movie. Tom Hanks bought everybody sunglasses as a thank you thing, and he and Carrie Fisher and Joe Dante like put their money together and rented out a water park for everybody to bring their families after. <laughs> Just everybody apparently got along. But what's wild is the tours for Universal were still going while they were filming this. And supposedly, like Fletch Lives was also filming on the other side of the back lot, but the tours would roll past during the day stuff while they were filming and they kind of had to stop occasionally for the tours to go through and um, let people take pictures and whatnot. But yeah, they specifically started this the day that the writer strike started. Then they got it all done specifically before the technician strike started that summer. So the backlot apparently was like a fucking ghost town because there were only these two things that were actively in production at the moment. The dog wrangler, on this movie is also the caretaker of Michael Jackson's pet chimp Bubbles. 
And so Bubbles the Chimp would <sighs> frequently visit the set with the Animal Wrangler. And so everybody got to be good friends with Bubbles as well. Well, and what was Feldman already like involved with Jackson at this point? I think this was all a little bit after that. Gotcha. But uh, as far as the cast goes, so Hanks was kind of the first person that was pulled into this whole thing. This was at an interesting point in his career because he was not the Tom Hanks that we all know. This was definitely pre-Oscar Tom Hanks. This was actually at a weird lull point in his career where he was doing stuff like Joe versus the Volcano, which I fucking love that movie, but that was a flop, right? This is comedy Tom Hanks. This is yes. bachelor party Tom Hanks. This is the money pit Tom Hanks. This yes. is that era, that like initial version of Tom Hanks. Is, he's hysterical. Yeah. To your earlier recommendation, this is Mazes and Monsters era Tom Hanks, right? Absolutely. Which is tragic, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> is this before or after Turner and Hooch Tom Hanks? Because that was the movie like we always watched a shit ton uh, while I was growing up because my dad loves that movie. We watched that. We watched Big a lot. Yeah. Big is right before this. Yeah. It's like the movie before this. But Splash was early 80s, right? That was like 83, 84. Yeah. Yeah. That's like the second movie. Yeah. To your point about Big, so Dante, Grazer, and Bresner all felt that he was the perfect choice to play the lead. Bresner even specifically said, quote, Hanks is an actor capable of acting funny rather than funny acting. Like, they all got the vibe that he kind of put out. And Hanks and Dante, like, have nothing but good things to say about each other. They very much enjoyed working with each other, like, good times. But this was at that weird period of Hanks' career. While they were kind of finishing up production, and while this movie was in post before it came out, it was supposed to come out December of 88. Tom Hanks ended up getting nominated for a fucking Oscar for Big. That was his first Academy Award nomination, right? They pushed the movie back purposely to a February of 89 release, specifically just to kind of let that hype build up a little bit. Matter of fact, an early version of the story, Hanks was actually supposed to be killed at the end. Whoa, that would have been rough. That was going to be the dark twist was like, oh, the neighbors actually are killers. And look, he's getting killed as the ambulance is driving away. Roll credits. Yeah. Whoa. And that was just going to be like the final gotcha stinger thing. He was going to get Kevorkianed and then out. Yeah. Wow. And they completely <laughs> reworked the ending specifically because Hanks suddenly had this huge lift in his career and his persona and everything else. Oh, shit. So originally they had that in the trigger already? Wow. Is yeah. that like a deleted scene on, on the Blu-rays and everything now? So, no. That was the original ending for the script. They didn't actually okay. film that ending. Oh, I thought they had filmed it and had it in the can already. And then they were like, no. oh, fuck. No, no, we no. got to change it. Okay. So, like I mentioned, this movie had... A lot of let's just do it in the moment improv. Let's rework stuff, right? Uh, just sitting on that that alternate ending one more time, like that would have flipped it from a horror comedy to a comedy horror. <laughs> yeah, and that was supposed to be the whole point. Was it's that horror movie ending stinger? Like, oh, turns out, oh, you were right the whole time. Which I, I like the ending we have now because they still do that. But it doesn't betray the rest of the movie in terms of yeah. how slapstick it is. Tone, yeah, yeah. yeah. So they specifically reworked the entire ending of this movie because his career was kind of getting a lift from Big and from 
his Oscar nomination, right? So they like completely redid that and put it out after the fact, right? So that's a lot of why this movie was such a success, because all of a sudden, everybody wanted to go see fucking Tom Hanks, right? I mean, that was a smart call. Oh, totally, totally. If this movie had come out when they originally planned, or even, let's say, like a year earlier, it may not have done well at all. Well, this feels like the furthest thing from a December movie, because any movie that's coming out in December is either going to be like a blockbuster action movie or Christmas. Yeah. Otherwise, this movie, honestly, it doesn't even feel like a February movie either. It feels like a summer movie. Yeah. But, you know, February seemed like it was a lot more kind to this movie than December would have been. Yeah. That's for damn sure. And it's interesting, too, that Hanks apparently thought that his character should not be a dad. And he pushed to have the son character removed from the story entirely because he didn't want to be typecast as a dad character moving forward. And obviously, he's not always that, but Tom Hanks is the most dad of pretty much any mainstream American actor out there. You know, like you sometimes see Denzel Washington and you're like, he's got some dad energy. I can see him in this role as a dad. But for the most part, he fucking doesn't really. Right. You look at like Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise has negative levels of dad energy. Keanu Reeves doesn't have dad energy. to me. Exactly. Right. Tom Hanks has the most dad energy. (laughs) I even put in my notes too. like my dad has dressed exactly like Tom Hanks in this movie my entire (laughs) life. His fucking shorts and that loose button down shirt and like the loafers. That's how my dad has dressed my entire fucking life to the point that those clothes that he still has are now falling apart because that's just how he's dressed (laughs) my entire like hey hey tom i'm sorry bud but you're perfect in this role you're perfect (laughs) as a schlubby dad who has too much time on his hand and this was his dad nick this was the moment he stepped into that mantle and took it on in the burbs because if you think the bachelor party tom hanks that is not a dad that is the loose guy yeah big joe versus the volcano like none of those are like dad even like turner and hooch where he is taking care of a dog it's never in a like fatherly way it is always in like yeah. a i'm living with a terrible roommate kind of way right well he, he would go on to be in plenty of stuff where he was in dad mode anyway so exactly but right? this is like he's perfect for this yeah he does barely have any scenes with that kid yeah, yeah. the kid isn't really in this movie much <laughs> yeah to be honest he has a few funny moments and the intro scene where they're just eating hilarious amounts of sugar. Yeah. The kid is just piling sugar under his food. And then uh, well, specifically to art comes over and is just eating all their fucking food and leftovers. Carrie Fisher walks behind him with a bowl and he just instinctively reaches back and grabs a handful and puts it in his mouth and makes like a uh, face. And then you see her like in the background, put the bowl down for the dog and the dog runs over and starts eating. <laughs> There's just doofy shit like well, that. And I love that That's she so doesn't good. stop him either. She's like, you no, fuck no. you. Because then he goes to the fridge and comes back with a giant plate of dino ribs and like a whole pineapple. Yeah, it, it looks like some Fred Flintstone shit. Yeah. Yeah. And Carrie Fisher is the most over everyone's bullshit in this movie and it's kind of the best which before we move on to her it's interesting that tom hanks has basically never gone back to horror he was in one episode of tales from the crypt which literally everybody else in this cast has been on tales from the crypt probably because of working with dante since he was heavily involved with that show The closest that Tom Hanks has come to being in anything horror-related since this movie is playing the fucking David S. Pumpkins character on SNL. (laughs) How's it hanging? 
I'm David Pumpkins, and I'm going to scare the hell out of you. Any questions? Scared and speechless? Oh, no, no, I'm just trying to wrap my head around David Pumpkins? I mean, are we supposed to know who that is? Yeah, it was just a guy in a pumpkin suit with two b-boy skeletons. I don't get how that's scary. But yeah, you're right. It's kind of unbelievable that he never goes back to war with yeah. how many movies he's in. Yeah, he does a Stephen King, right? So he does the Green Mile. Yeah, but, it's but that's the not least a horror, horror Stephen, Stephen King, King, right? Yeah, he does like Angels and Demons in the Da Vinci Code, but again, that's not horror. None of that's horror, right? That's all like yeah. doofy airport thriller shit. Yeah. The other thing I'll say too, and this again, kind of going back to production and what could have happened with this movie in the original version of the script. And in scenes that they filmed that are in a work print alternate cut of this movie that you can watch, so much of Hanks's character and motivations become clear when you learn that originally he was fired from his job and has not told anybody. And that is why he is acting like depressed and kind of sketchy and nervous around everybody. And everybody keeps asking him like, what are you doing home? Why are you not at work? He gets fired. Kevin McCarthy like even shows up playing his boss. Kevin McCarthy from Inner Space and yeah. a bunch of other shit in the 80s. God, people must love working with Dante so much that they're willing to like do stuff for He's him. He's got yeah. a chunk of regulars which we'll go through in a minute yeah but once you find out oh originally his character was like fired from his job and that's why he's home and that's why he's like yeah fuck it like i'm just gonna stay around here i guess that's why and at the end when he tells carrie fisher like oh the real reason i've been weird lately is i got fired she's like oh i fucking know i know that i've known this whole time like i don't know why you didn't just tell me yeah. so it's interesting because the movie works as is but it's an interesting wrinkle to throw in and it makes a lot more sense as to why his character's acting the way he is. I think it just makes the movie a little more depressing. Yeah. And certainly it doesn't resolve anything by the end because then it's like, well, shit, you're still unemployed, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I love the idea of potentially doing that with the scene where he's in the backyard with like eight beer cans and yeah. where he's watching TV and that's starting to sink into like what he's imagining. I feel like that builds that better. Yeah. So, fascinating. Carrie Fisher. Plays his wife, Carol. Obviously, Star Wars. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Like, what else do you need to say? Yeah. Have you heard of it? But yeah, uh, real quick, I definitely texted you guys this. So this is a, kind of a hot take because like so many people had a crush on Princess Leia. While I love the character, her, Han Solo, and Luke Skywalker are like the perfect trifecta of sci-fi main characters to me. I never got it. It just wasn't my thing. You were never like, I need a poster of her in the metal bikini. Metal bikini, yeah. like in my room, right? The Burbs, Carrie Fisher? I get it. <laughs> I, like, as a kid, if I saw this, because surprisingly, I had never seen, I thought I'd seen a lot of this movie, but I'd actually never seen this movie until I watched it just now. And uh, I would have crushed on her pretty hard. I'll say, too, I think I understand where you're coming from, because let's be real, Carrie Fisher in this movie has a lot of your wife's energy, for sure. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 A hundred percent. In all amazing ways. Yeah. Carrie Fisher also in shampoo blues brothers which my hot take is i think she's the hottest in blues brothers but when harry met sally drop dead fred scream three sorority row maps to the stars fisher is also like 
super well known for writing. She's written tons and tons of books, biographies, how-to stuff. She has done script punch-ups on so much shit. She's done so much uncredited punch-up work, just stuff that she was in doing punch-up work. And she contributed a lot to this script, this movie, the dialogue, just kind of being there, right? The whole, like, them sitting around and watching Jeopardy together and playing Jeopardy together was something she totally came up with. Weird, too. She's, like, wearing a wig through most of this shoot, and the wig apparently just wasn't that different from her real hair, but that's where the joke comes from at the end, where Tom Hanks is like, I like your haircut, your hair looks good, right? Just She's just kind of like, sure, whatever, because it was just like one scene where they forgot to put the wig on her. <laughs> that's amazing. But Hanks specifically pushed for her in this role purely because he was such a fan of Star Wars, which <laughs> I love. I kind of fucking love that. That's great. Yeah. And I mean, again, they they also have a good report. Yeah. But yeah, like where was she at career-wise at this point, like post-Star Wars? I mean, the same place that all that main cast was immediately post-Star Wars, you know, like she and Mark Hamill didn't necessarily have another major franchise to kind of keep them floating like Harrison Ford did. I mean, he basically went from Return of the Jedi and it stepped right onto the set for Temple of Doom, you know? So, like, yeah. they were, you know, kind of doing whatever came their way. You know, Fisher, again, was doing a lot of writing. And, again, that whole chunk of stuff I just listed off, she's good in all of that, you know? But yeah. this was definitely a time where, you know, she was kind of in and out of her substance abuse struggles, which I'm going to circle back around to that in a second. So just put a pin in that. We then move on to Bruce Dern who plays Rumsfeld, who is the, like, Vietnam vet wannabe badass guy who is <laughs> egging on Ray yep. Hart as well. He is in a ton of westerns and cop stuff from back in the day, a lot of TV. He's in a lot of new Hollywood stuff like The Trip, Hang 'em High, Silent Running, which was like a big sci-fi movie back in the day that's pretty fun. He's in the version of The Great Gatsby that we probably all saw in high school growing up from the 70s. Yeah. Spy Old, Hitchcock's Family Plot, Black Sunday, Walter Hill's The Driver, which is fucking awesome. He voices one of the soldiers in Small Soldiers, again, coming back to work with Joe Dante. He is in Joe Dante's The Hole. He is in Twixt, which is like a fucking weird Coppola late era movie that just got a new Blu-ray release with a completely new weird cut that I needed to check out. <laughs> that is also like a weird fantasy horror movie. You cinema nerd. Yeah. <laughs> Nebraska. He's also a Tarantino guy. And then, yeah, he's been in all of Tarantino's last couple stuff. He's in Django Unchained, Hateful Eight, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I wouldn't be surprised if he pops back up in Tarantino's last one. He is also in a movie called Hellblazers which somebody else in the cast is in as well. I'll circle back around to. Not about Constantine, though? No, not that one. <laughs> yeah, I know. This is a horror comedy that has tons of horror icon people in it. Oh. So, yeah, he is in that. Shit, man, he's 86 and still fucking yeah. working. And I mean, Crazy. He's, he's just part of all that Hollywood royalty, you know, family. I mean, Laura, Father of Laura Dern. Laura Dern is his yeah. daughter, right? So, like, he's going to keep working until he's dead. Man, what a family, him, and then your daughter is fucking Laura Dern, who is amazing. Oh, yeah. And yeah. everything she's in. So, like, to make his character a Vietnam vet, 
that was on purpose, right? <laughs> like oh, that yeah, was absolutely just to further the commentary of 1980s suburbs, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Art again, the like neighbor who kind of instigates all this crazy shit. He is the like kooky weirdo neighbor that lives on the street that kind of just irritates everybody. He is played by comedian Rick Dukamon. He was a Canadian comedian who started off in TV and then played bit parts in a ton of movies. I mean, he had a fucking great run before he died. Spaceballs, Die Hard, Little Monsters, Hunt for Red October, Gremlins 2, Last Boy Scout, Encino Man, Class Act, Groundhog Day, Last Action Hero, Blank Check, Scary Movie. Pretty good fucking run. Who was he in uh, Die Hard? He's literally one of the city electricians that comes and like looks at the fuse box panel in the garage with the FBI guys. And it's like, I don't know what they did. They fucked everything up and I can't get back into the system or whatever. He's in like one scene and that's gotcha. it. Okay. I was, uh, I was trying to remember if he was one of the office workers. Hans, booby. <laughs> I'm your yeah. white knight. Hans, booby. I'm your white knight. Wendy Shaw plays Bonnie, who is the wife of Rumsfeld. Yeah. She was in a bunch of TV. She was in Creature, that I mentioned during the recommendations. Munchies, which weirdly enough is one of the many Gremlins ripoffs. Inner Space, Battery's Not Included. She is Kristen Dunst's mom in Small Soldiers. And then she is the voice of like wife mom character in American Dad. I don't watch that show, so I don't know the name. Leanne, I think is the name of the character. So this is where I was I was saying earlier, like we're talking about Simpsons lasting forever and having so many seasons. Did you motherfuckers know that American Dad has been on since 2005? What? I didn't realize it was that long, and I, I also saw that it was over 300 episodes. <laughs> yeah, she's been in 384 episodes of this show. So, first of all, first of all, this show was like a fucking weird spinoff thing of Family Guy. Yep. Yes. American Dad supposedly started in 2005. My memory is this show came out post-college for us. You know, I just don't really remember any, I've never really met anybody that's into American Dad, right? Whatever. Weirdly enough, because I'm one of those people that hates Family Guy, but like, weirdly enough, I've heard a lot of people say like, if you hate Family Guy, you should give American Dad a shot. Like, American Dad is actually the good show out of Seth MacFarlane's cartoons. I've seen some American Dad and just, it's not for me, whatever. But I'm good. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's for me either. What makes me feel extra old is this, just cross-referencing, because I was like, no, no, no. There's no way American Dad came out while I was still in high school. What the fuck? No way. No way. Because nobody was even talking about Family Guy until we were like in college, right? No. I look up fucking Family Guy. When do y'all think Family Guy started? Oh, three. It was like 2000 or 2001, right? Like the very first. Because it got canceled for a while and it got revived later on when we were in college or outside of college. Okay, then you might have answered the question. So, Family Guy started in 1999? Yeah, yeah. What in the fuck? I don't remember anybody talking about that goddamn show until we were in college, so I guess that explains it. Maybe it was one season got canceled and then came back way later on. So, here's what happened, because, Sean, you and I watched at least the first two seasons of Family Guy when we were teenagers, but 
I was still watching a lot of The Simpsons, like, in 1999. Well, I have burned in my brain South Park started in 97. Yeah. Because I specifically remember, like, being in fourth grade and people all the time talking about South Park, right? That was, like, the show every kid was talking about. So I know in my head it's 97, but it broke my brain when I saw Family Guy started in 99. I was like, there's no way. There's no way. There was years in between those shows. Apparently not. So I I was watching... The Simpsons still in 99 pretty religiously. And Fox made a big push during Simpsons episodes. They're making a big push for Family Guy. Like, this is going to be like the next Simpsons to continue the legacy, but also while The Simpsons is still around. And we're going to like turn it into this major like adult animation power hour between the two of them. It lasted, I think, two seasons, right, Sean? Yeah. It lasted two seasons and they got canceled. And then there was such a movement of DVD sales. DVD sales is, I think, the key. Yeah. Right? That, that was something where it was peaking right at the full series in a DVD store. You'd go yeah. get them at Blockbuster, you purchase the full DVD set, and you'd watch them. And I think it, it hit at that period of time. That makes sense. So as we were seeing them then, and then when you're thinking about when did you actually watch those, they were the DVDs that people took to college. And this all makes that's sense. how it becomes a TV show that you watched, at least got thrown on a DVD player during college at that time. Yeah. Or nonstop reruns on Adult Swim by that time 100%. and Comedy Central. But looking at this on Wiki, season one, 99, season two, 2000, season three, 2003, and then season four, 2006. So that is what my memory is. is 2006, 7, 8, 9, 10, and onward, that's when we were in college. That's what my brain remembers. So that makes sense, I guess. Like you said, that it was just kind of there in the background vaguely for a long time. Yeah, okay. and season four to now, which I think they're like on season 20, 21 I'm going to cut all this out, but still, I was just yeah. like, what the fuck? That makes <laughs> yeah. me feel so goddamn old. And then you mentioned in The Simpsons, like, also popped that back in my head again. I want to say season four to where they are now, which they're still going. That's been a is like nonstop. Technically, yeah. the revival because yeah. the first two, three seasons were like we were saying. I think they like broke at the time, like DVD records as far as sales and rentals went. Yeah, and sure. that's what caused Fox to basically resurrect the show. Yeah. Well, again, this is me just being more of a movie person and less of a TV person, but also like Family Guy is just not for me. So you're better off with Bob's Burgers. <laughs> Weirdly, a bunch of the guys from Crack. Do you guys remember Crack.com? Yeah. Yeah. A bunch of that like internet writing of that time period. A few of those guys are now writers on American Dad. And listen, I don't watch it, but I'm glad those people are getting their checks. I mean, sure. Yeah. If you're a writer, like get paid. Sure. So to circle back around. We've brought this up a couple times. So Corey Feldman plays Ricky, who's kind of the, like teenage troublemaker, but not really. We never see him like make trouble. But again, he instigates. He plays rock music gladly. Yeah, but sure. that's about it. <laughs> Invites friends over who drink beer on the lawn. Yeah, very bad at painting. Tries to hit on Wendy Shaw, even though he it seems like he's in a uh, committed relationship already, and that's about yeah. it. Child actor, famously, he's in Time After Time. He voices one of the, like, young characters. I guess not characters. One of the young animals in Fox and the Hound, famously. He is in Friday the 13th, the final chapter, as Tommy Doyle. No, not Tommy Doyle. That's fucking Halloween. My brain is breaking. Tommy Jarvis. Jesus Christ. Tommy Jarvis. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) You should know that, bud. Uh, Yeah, exactly, right? Because he's, like, one of the characters that everybody fucking loves. He also shows up in, you know, the next movie, A New Beginning. 
He's in Gremlins. He's in Goonies, Stand By Me, The Lost Boys, Dream a Little Dream. He's the voice of Donatello in the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. Also in Tales from the Crypt. He's also in Bordello of Blood, which was the Tales from the Crypt movie. Polly Shore was considered for this role. What? <laughs> but Feldman had worked with Dante on his two previous movies, so Dante kind of already knew, nah, he works yeah. perfectly. This would be kind of obnoxious with Polly Shore, right? Like, I think Polly Shore doing his shtick. Just, no, nah. Too much. Too much, right? But, like you've mentioned a couple times, this was kind of when Feldman was going through some fucking personal struggles with substance abuse and things like that. He was having a pretty fucking tough time on set, but... Dante, again, who he had worked with a couple times previously, Shaw, and especially Carrie Fisher, all helped kind of guide and mentor him during the course of the shoot. So that's also like good to hear that these other people stepped in to kind of help him and support him during that time, especially Fisher. Lord knows she fucking had struggles her whole adult life. But it's good to know that she would at least still try to, like, help other people not fall into that same trap. And I've heard that she has been a mentor in that way to a lot of other people in the industry, frankly. Yeah. Um, well, and also Corey just kind of has a wild history that I'm not going to go into. Yeah. Even just on his, like, Wikipedia article, there's a whole section. But, like, both receiving and possibly giving abuse, like, unfortunately. Yeah. He's troubled. <laughs> troubled and problematic is what we'll He is the poster up. example of child actor gone bad, for sure, yeah. in a variety of ways. So, yeah, like, read up on that if you are interested, but that is what it is. So this gets us to the Klopeks. Dr. Werner Klopek is played by Henry Gibson. Lots of TV stuff. I did not fucking know this. He is the voice of Wilbur in Charlotte's Web. Had no Amazing. fucking clue. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> the guy who, like Sean said earlier, tries to Dr. Kevorkian murder yeah. Tom Hanks at the end. <laughs> He's also in a lot of good Altman stuff like Long Goodbye, Nashville. He's the leader of the Illinois Nazis in Blues Brothers, National Lampoon's Vacation, Inner Space, Gremlins 2, Tales from the Crypt. God damn, they, all these guys, all these actors just appear in multiple Joe Dante flicks. Oh, it's, yeah. It's, yeah, it's yeah, crazy. To go back to uh, Polly Shore, Biodome, he was also in Magnolia and then did lots of voice work. Uh, 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 Courtney Gaines plays Hans, the like werewolf boy. <laughs> Most people would also recognize him from Children of the Corn, where he plays Malachi. Yeah. He was also in Back to the Future before this. Ton of TV stuff. Tales from the Crypt. He is uncredited in Rob Zombie's Halloween, which I can't remember. He might have been a character that like was in an alternate cut and is in the movie, depending on which version you watch. I can't remember. Recently, he was in a movie called Candy Corn, and then he is the other person I mentioned that is in the Hellblazers, which then gets me to fucking Brother Theodore. So I've known for years vaguely like of Brother Theodore that plays Ruben Klopek the weird brother character. Y'all, yeah. this guy had a fucking wild life and career once I like actually looked him up. His name is actually brother? That's not like... No, that was his profession. His name is oh, Theodore okay. something. I can't remember his like actual name, but like brother Theodore was his professional name, right? Right. This dude, I'm telling y'all, fucking wild. I, I didn't know any of this shit. I vaguely knew of him as... A weirdo performance art 
comedian slash dark philosophy monologuist guy who would show up on late night shows in the 80s and do these overly dark and serious but completely veered off into weird surreal comedy kind of bits on the late night shows. Dude was born in 1906, so he was fucking over 80 years old when they made the Burbs, and he doesn't look that old. No. No. He was born in Dusseldorf, Germany, to a wealthy Jewish family that owned, like, a magazine company. So, of course, since the Nazis took power, that's one of the first families they took off the board, knowing that they, like, were running a publishing empire. He was imprisoned at Dachau and forced to sign over his family's fortune in exchange for release. So, like, all of his family was killed. And he was basically just turned out after he signed over all of their wealth. So he floated around Europe playing chess and like literally got kicked out of a couple of countries for chess hustling. An incredible pastime. He eventually bumped into a family friend in Austria who helped him immigrate to the U.S. Um, hold on, checks notes. Einstein, comma, Albert. (laughs) We heard of this guy, right? What the fuck? Family friend. Yeah. So he works as a janitor at Stanford University, where he would continue to fucking chess hustle and do wild shit like play 30 professors at the same time. He happened into a role in Orson Welles' The Stranger and was also in The Third Man and shit like this. Like he was in these really major movies back in the day, just kind of happened into roles acting. He eventually moves to New York City and kind of becomes this weird beat poet bizarro dark philosophy comedian monologue guy named brother theodore named brother theodore i'm looking at an advertisement from 1946 on his wiki article yeah he would appear on all the late night shows and clubs and shit i am a cosmodynamic personality mm-hmm. walking through life in beauty and eternal youth i'm in the prime of my senility now here On television, I probably look like a pile of mud, (laughs) but that's only because television is still in its infancy. I am what you might call a controversial figure. People either hate me or despise me. (laughs) They would rather shake the devil by the tail than shake me by the hand. But with every failure, David, with every failure, My reputation grows. One of these days, you'll see my picture on every postage stamp. One of these days, I'll funerize the world. Is uh, is that a Banlon shirt? He briefly retired in the 70s and then made a comeback doing shows at the Magic Townhouse and doing late night shows like David Letterman and shit, which that's kind of where like I was aware of him vaguely. And then he did a residency at a theater in Greenwich Village until he died in 2001. Dude kept fucking doing weird comedy shit for like another 20 years. Dude, what a life. 94, too. Yeah. And... The Burbs was his final film appearance, 
But again, he kept doing comedy shit for like 20 more years, just what he was doing originally. And like, he has the least amount of dialogue except maybe the wolf boy. Yeah. And it's still fucking hilarious. What's wild is, again, he's in The Stranger. He's in The Third Man. He is in this wild kung fu horror movie called Devil's Express, where like... There are demons from ancient China that are now in the sewers in New York, and there's like a black exploitation kung fu guy who has to go fight them. Awesome. That movie's fucking awesome. That sounds awesome. amazing. <laughs> that sounds rad as heck. He did a lot of voice work. He does a voice in The Last Unicorn, and weirdly enough, what? <laughs> he is the voice of Gollum in the animated Hobbit and Return of the King movies that came out back in the day. Let go, Gollum! Let go! Or I'll cut your throat! Don't hurt us! Don't let them hurt us, precious! Cruel little hobbitses! Jumps on us like cats on poor mices! Gollum! We'll be nice to them if they'll be nice to us! Won't we, precious? I remember them. Yeah. Talk about stuff that so might have scarred me a little bit when I was a kid because I saw yeah. it way too soon. So like fucking wild career this guy's had. So I read what his headstone reads and I, I love this. Known as Brother Theodore, solo performer, comedian, metaphysician. Here's the quote they use. And this is such a good quote. As long as there is death, there is hope. <laughs> yeah. He did darkly comic weird shit like that. Letterman introduced him as a philosopher, a metaphysicist, and an expert podiatrist. You, know? <laughs> you could just get on TV by being like, I'm weird, but like entertainingly weird. Yeah, dude, he sounds yeah. like he just wandered into shit. He would just do these crazy stream of consciousness monologues and just riff and riff and do just weird spiral offing kind of shit at these clubs and stuff like that, but it was always weirdly comic and surreal, and he just got popular for being, because he would do it deadpan and weird, you know? Unless he gets canceled for having actually some real bad skeletons in the closet, it feels like Tavi Wiseau, if his history is actually ever unveiled, it'll be a lot like Brother Theodore's. Probably, yeah. (laughs) So, Walter, the old man who disappears, is played by Gail Gordon. He was in, like, all the fucking Lucy shows back in the day. And he is also known for playing Mr. Wilson in the original Dennis the Menace TV show. So, like, wild fucking... Sure, yeah. Dennis! (laughs) It also explains why there are a bunch of framed pictures of Lucille Ball all over his house when they go into his house. Yeah, I noticed that. Yeah, It was literally just like a fun why the fuck not kind of thing. This was also his final film appearance. He would die just a couple of years later in 95, but this was the last movie he was in. And then from there, like we've got all these other regular kind of players who show up. So like Dick Miller is one of the garbage men. We don't even have to fucking talk about everything Dick Miller's been in, but he is one of the best that guy actors. He literally has a documentary called That Guy. As soon as I saw him on the screen, I was like, I know that guy. Oh, yeah. I've seen yeah, him yeah. in so much stuff. He's been in all the Joe Dante movies. I mean, dude has 185 credits. I will point out he is not only in Batman the Animated Series, but he is also in Mask of the Phantasm. So check that box as well. Robert Picardo plays the other garbage men. Again, another that guy actor. He has 245 credits. I'm not going into all of them. But he <laughs> is in all the Joe Dante movies as well. He is the main werewolf villain in The Howling. He is also most well known for being the like holodeck doctor on all the Star Trek shit. So he has been that character across 
every Star Trek title. Also does voice work for Batman the Animated Series. So, boom, there we go. Not only do we have Batman the Animated Series come up in this episode, but also Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. (laughs) Nikki Cat pops up as one of Ricky's friends. He's the guy with the mullet and the skateboard shirt. He was in Gremlins. He would go on to be in Days and Confused. Doom Generation, Strange Days, Time to Kill, Batman and Robin, The Limey, Boiler Room, Insomnia, School of Rock, Sin City, Grindhouse, and The Dark Knight. Wild that he has been in two completely whiplash different iterations of Batman. Yeah. But just looking at, he's been in all these movies and all these little bit parts, mostly. But looking at the directors he's worked with, Dante, Linklater, Greg Rackey, Catherine Bigelow, Joel Schumacher, Steven Soderbergh, Christopher Nolan, Tarantino, and Robert Rodriguez. Like, what a fucking wild chunk of directors to say I worked with. I mentioned his shirt. He's got a t-shirt on in this movie for Skull Skates, which was a company that Rick Dukeman owned with his brother. They started it in the late 70s as great northern country skateboards. So, like, while that the guy that played Art also owns a fucking skateboard company with his brother, Rance Howard, Ron Howard's father, who is also one of those that guy actors that has been in 280-something fucking movies, he just plays one of the cops that shows up at the end. I saw, like, a wild connection thing that was like, Ron Howard is an executive producer on The Burbs. Bruce Dern is one of the stars of The Burbs. Both of their daughters would go on to be leads in two different eras of Jurassic Park movies. (laughs) Sure, fucking whatever. What a good way to describe that career. Yeah, that's such a weird connection. And then both of them are like in the fucking last movie together. And the last person I'll bring up is fucking Kevin Gage. Plays one of the cops. Uncredited, apparently. Fucking Wayne Grow from Heat. I had to get it on, man. He was making a move. I had to get it on. Yeah, I had to get it on, man. I had to get it on. I only bring him up, though, because he was also in fucking Ricky Six that I mentioned on one of our last episodes that was about the fucking Acid King killer and Satanic Panic and all that shit. So, yeah, that's the cast. To round out everything else, Jerry Goldsmith did the score for a lot of Dante's major movies, but I love how he reused a motif from Patton every time that Rumsfeld enters the scene that like He's totally fucking pulled from Patton on purpose, which was like an Oscar-nominated score of his. But there is also a lot of Ennio Morricone music that's used from spaghetti westerns in this as well.
Yeah, the Western music playing, like, when he's trying to act brave was pretty nice I touch. I fucking love it. And when I was re-watching this the other day, like, anytime that it does the Western music, it's fucking great. But early on, when he's going into their yard for the first time, and it's just doing that slow zoom in on all the neighbors' faces in that spaghetti western way, I love when it switches to the fucking poodle, and the poodle is also just (laughs) staring steely at him. I was fucking crying, snotting, dying, laughing, and backing that scene up and turning to Heather and be like, watch this fucking dog, and both of us just laughing and her laughing at me laughing so hard. It's such a reminder that they do genre so well in yeah. both the music and the way it's filmed throughout the entire movie. Yeah. yeah. Kind of like I mentioned, because of the improv nature of this movie, there's a ton of alternate scenes and takes. This was one of those movies that had a weird TV edit. Remember when that was like a fucking thing where you would yeah. watch the movie on TV and there would be different shit in it from like what you remember? Again, one of the biggest changes was that Hanks was originally fired from his job. That is all a subplot that is present in the work print version of this movie that is on the Scream Factory Blu-ray. So if you have the Blu-ray, there is a completely different version that you can watch that has all these other bits and pieces incorporated into it. And it's interesting because it plays out a little bit different overall. The tone is a little bit different in it. The movie was originally supposed to open and close with the theme song from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. They scrapped that once Goldsmith came on board and could provide like a full score for it. But this alternate version is also on the work print, which is kind of funny, like interesting foreshadowing that Hanks would literally be playing Fred Rogers 30 years later in that fucking Mr. Rogers movie that came out a couple (laughs) years ago. Yeah. Like I mentioned, the ending was up in the air when they went into production. And so they just kind of figured like, we'll figure the ending out. But there were alternate versions where they discovered what was in the trunk of the Klopex car. One version was that it was a bunch of dead cheerleaders. Another version was that it was the two garbage men from earlier in the movie. So they actually shot both of those alternate takes and then used an insert shot of the bones later. I do think the uh, cheerleaders bit would have worked. Maybe like not necessarily. I don't know how they would have been able to do it without it looking grisly. It would have worked in that way of like also kind of poking fun at 80 slashers as well yeah. in a pretty like tongue in cheek way that the rest of this movie kind of does. Yeah. The bones is hilarious. The bones it's, are it's funny. Like, it's truly yeah. hilarious. They're like fully decomposed bones. Yeah. yeah. And the bones also kind of look just cheap and fake enough that it fits the rest of the movie. I love that like yeah. the one like its jaw just like bah, just falls open. <laughs> you know, just yeah. Perfect. And there's like green and red light as soon as they open the trunk. To go back to like all like at least the male characters being fucking morons in this movie. The Klopex, what the hell did they think was going to happen? They're doing weird shit in the basement that's lighting up the entire street in the middle of the night. Someone's going to notice that. I wrote down it's literally that fucking nuclear microwave oven that Om Shadrinkio had that they like nuked people's fucking bodies in the dust. <laughs> So they wanted the house, but the people who own the house didn't want to sell it. So they just murdered them and moved in. Yeah. What was your end goal here? The the scene where they take the car and drive it to the end of their driveway, get out to throw trash bags in the trash can, is (laughs) one of the funniest things. That still cracks me up. Yeah. That whole scene happens. And then Tom Hank puts a hat on that scene. It's like, why'd they do that? 
Yeah. <laughs> it's just hilarious. Yeah. Well, and then uh, and then when you think about it too, the Kopex kind of would have still gotten away with it. I guess maybe if once the house burned down and they went through the remains, they would have found some like the skeletons. Maybe. Yeah, but they would have bailed town by then. They would have right? bailed town by then. The whole thing was put on Tom Hanks. They could have just left at any point, and they would have been fine. But no, again, paranoia actually undoes, undoes, undoes. What's the what's the proper terminology here? Und undudes. <laughs> yeah, undudes. The Clopex, like their own paranoia. Yeah. That like he saw a skull and you know, that's how they're found out trying to go after him, which no offense to the older doctor, but like how did he think he was gonna overpower Tom Hanks? Yeah. Maybe he thought he was fucked up enough from the explosion that he could do it. Well, so that was also one of the other endings. Again, he was originally supposed to kill Hanks in the ambulance. Man, that would have been dark as fuck. Well, they also filmed a version where they open the ambulance door and they see the struggle and he's caught. There wasn't the whole business of driving driving the ambulance off all crazy and the gurney falling out the back and skidding through like in the ambulance going through the front of Art's house. None of that was originally there. But it's better that it went that way because we get that like Art getting fucked over. The pizza! (laughs) You need that last bit of ridiculousness to kind of cap off the movie. Yeah. And apparently Feldman was a little bit more involved in all the ending stuff. But because of how they rewrote it, he's kind of just always on the sidelines. But Dante kind of made it up to him by giving him that final line in the movie where he turns around and says, God, I love this street. Some other things I wrote down, just Gremlin cereal in the kitchen. Great touch. I've mentioned this on the show before, especially with the Poltergeist episode. I love family house movies during this time period that are just fucking chaotic and busy. It's the worst. It's how I grew up. Everybody walking on top of each other and just too much yelling and screaming and not knowing what's going on. That kind of chaos. Waiting on the bathroom. Yeah, waiting on the bathroom, right? I love seeing that in movies. So there's something that's a little bit comforting about that, I think, because that's that makes sense. exactly how I grew up. Yeah. I also wrote down Jeopardy actually used to have like real academic shit on it. <laughs> We've all gotten stupid. And now every time I see stuff from Jeopardy, it all seems to be just pop culture bullshit. It more than anything we've all got dumber is that what you said Sean? yeah basically yeah <laughs> can't really argue it tom hanks eating the fucking sardine pretzel is one of the funniest things i've ever seen holy shit that was like that was great comedy. yeah i love that anytime that courtney Gaines is on screen there's always fly buzzing noises like he is fucking rank stinky the fucking weird painting in the clopex house That's doctors operating on a patient, but it's from the patient's POV. That painting looks like a fucking weird UFO abduction. And maybe that's just (laughs) where my brain was because I was watching alien movies during this time. But I mean, like, if you woke up in the middle of an operation, but you were still, which happens, by the way, sometimes. Yeah, that's what you'd see. You kind of think it was like an alien abduction because you're kind of out of your mind. Yeah, that painting was actually featured in a 1969 episode of Night Gallery. So, like, Dante picked that specifically (laughs) for some reason. Like, maybe he saw that episode of Night Gallery and was like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) I don't know. Get me that painting. Yeah. The Clopex Great Dane is named Landru after a French serial killer named Henri Landru. (laughs) So, yeah, again, another like, oh, hmm. So, yeah. References all the way down. Yeah, Weird Nazi doctor serial killer. You have a great day named after a French serial killer. Okay, I'm glad you brought that up because he really does seem like a Nazi doctor. (laughs) His name is Dr. Werner Klopek. Yeah. (gasps) Yeah. 
Totally. That's the vibe. Yeah, he escaped punishment. and No wonder he's going around in middle America murdering people. Yeah. <laughs> I love when Hanks tries to use the stupid credit card trick to open the front door and the credit card just snaps. Like, that's just one of those stupid things that you always see in movies and TV shows. And I bet Joe Dante was just like, I fucking hate that. That shit's so stupid. Yeah, it's just, it's just going to break. <laughs> just like, of course, do it in the movie. Why not? And then don't they just like literally break the window? Yeah, he just like grabs a pot off the wall and just smashes the window. It's like, oh, fuck it, whatever. I love the giant Home Alone furnace. We brought that up yeah. on the show at some point, I can't remember when, but I remember you talking about yeah. being terrified of the furnace when you were a kid. Yeah. As a kid, very first time I ever watched Home Alone when I was really young, the furnace terrified me in the same way it terrifies him in the movie. Yeah. Going all the way back to one of our earliest episodes, Black Code's Daughter, because there's like a furnace in that too. That's creepy as shit, yeah. That might have been when I referenced it. Yep. So yeah, that's about it. Finally, the movie grossed $49 million on its $18 million budget. There you go. And again, I would bet some of that success was just people wanting more Hanks, kind of in the wake of Big being such a success and him getting nominated for that. But yeah, fun shit. Love this movie. Yeah. I have a lot of nostalgia for this movie. I've always loved it. This is one that I love showing groups of people. Just super fun. Well, I think that is going to wrap it up for this episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast. Sean, thank you so much for coming on and discussing this movie with us. I was very itching to do this. And once Derek said, oh, Sean loves this fucking movie from growing up, like, absolutely. Let's get him on. Let's talk about it. So thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Again, I couldn't even tell you exactly when you've brought up the burbs. I just know you've brought it up a few times and yeah. said you love it. Yeah, this is my guy. I love this guy's movies. Uh, the burbs is great. Thank you so much for having me on. This was a pleasure. Yeah, I mean, we have a couple more Joe Dante. So every time we do one, we might get you back on then. Hey, man, I'm in. Hell yeah. Download and follow us on all the podcatchers going forward, uh, specifically Apple Podcasts. Throw us a review on there. Five stars, five stars, please. Big thanks to everybody who has contributed to our Patreon so far. Yeah. Really excited to see the level of support and engagement that we've gotten there. Please continue to support us. Uh, yeah. You can find us at patreon.com slash watch if you dare. Uh, we have a basic $5 tier, lets you be a member of the Spoop Troop, where we are putting out a lot of bonus content, like interviews, franchise deep dives, lists, discussions, horror television stuff as well. By the time this episode comes out, we'll be covering some TV. So yeah, it's just kind of a way that we can break our typical show format a little bit and do some fun side shit and give you some extra stuff to listen to. Here's a little taste of what you can expect uh, by joining our Patreon. It's been a lot of fun going through Gravity Falls. Hell yeah. One of my favorite shows. Yeah. That's super exciting. Yep. Glad to see the Spook Boys getting into TV. Yep. Yeah. Well, we're going to start off light, but granted, we're going to tackle like more intense horror shows and other media sooner or later. But I got to work Derek up into uh, <laughs> being able to do Haunting of Hill House and whatnot. Haunting of Hill House is going to fuck me up when we do it. It's going to be good. So anyway, yeah. Check us out there. Our socials are at Watch If You Dare on Twitter and Facebook. Obviously, Twitter is kind of a shit show these days. So, you know, search for us there. It's still uh, working. All of our links. <laughs> yeah, mark. it's still working, question mark. All of our links are still up there, question mark. We still have our Spotify music playlist, which that is now linked from our Facebook page. You can just search for it on Spotify. Uh, we just ran out of slots to put that on Twitter. Um, but that is still there if you want to catch some spoopy tunes and horror movie themes and stuff like that. 
Speaking of music, big thanks to my little brother Jesse Mansfield, as always, aka Party Gator, for providing the music bumps at the beginning and ends of all of our episodes, um, including our Patreon content. Uh, you can find him on Bandcamp at Party Gator, Opossums, Big Clown. He's got several different things there. So check his stuff out, get some cool music, throw him a couple bucks. That'd be greatly appreciated. Yeah. Beyond that, I mean, all I've really got to say is just Derek. There's no doubt anymore. This is real. Sean's secretly murdering people. He's chopping them up. He's burying them in his backyard. Derek, this is Sally. Ah! Ah!